Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, January 30th, 843-661-0937, our number. Good morning, Josh. Morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Um, I want to begin this morning's show by congratulating Josh. Scored yesterday. Um, asked him to kind of run down what he could find out about the Maysville story regarding the mayor and some of the um, some of the issues. We don't understand in total exactly what's going on there, but we have the mayor of Maysville, um, Chris Brown, newly elected mayor of Maysville, Chris Brown, scheduled to be on the air with us at 7.05. He's actually decided to give us as much time as we need to explain the situation with Gage. I had a caller yesterday from Sumter, had another caller send me an article, and um, I'm a little more versed than I was yesterday at this time. Still not anywhere near as versed as I'm sure Chris Brown is, but uh, Mayor Brown of Maysville will be on the phone with us at 7.05. I want to thank Josh. He'll be in the uh, studio. He'll be here. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. Better yet. Better yet. I wore socks and kind of a collar, right? (laughs) Where's the hoodie? Yeah. You You want to be funny man <laughs> well want to be funny man well i just noticed it wasn't hoodie a, a hoodie day right? the hoodie is unbelievably versatile i have this quandary you folks could care less but it's a big deal in my world it doesn't matter what the temperature outside is i spent about five hours from about five in the morning to about 10 of the uh in the morning in a studio with a lot of equipment Bright lights it gives off stuff. a lot of hot air. Bright lights, the rev. I mean, everything in is full of hot air, <laughs> and and it, it creates. I suppose I deserve uh, that. It creates climate <laughs> conflict in my life. I mean, I'm not out and about. I'm not in and out of a room. I'm not in and out of a a car. I mean, I'm in this John Brown studio uh, for five hours a day, and it gets hot, no matter what the temperature is outside. But when I leave here at ten, guess what? I don't care the bright lights. I don't care the equipment. I don't care rev with me. So I try to be versatile. Uh, my mom said, dress in layers. So I try to take that to heart. And these these thinner hoodies seem to work better than anything. You don't burn up in the studio and you don't freeze to death when you're out and about. And as you get a little older, newsflash, you get a little colder. I mean, that, that's kind of, a, I got a friend of mine, three years older than I am. And it's as if he's embarrassed when he asks me, hey, man, you get cold easier now. And I'm like, what do you mean? I mean, I'm not as old as you. You're 63. Oh, okay. Okay. But yeah, I get colder, uh, easier. I guess blood gets thinner. I don't have any idea what it causes or what causes it, but that's the reason that I've, um, I've gone to the hoodie. The hoodie is the versatile choice. Um, not too hot in the studio, not too cold, um, out and about eight, four, three, six, six, one, oh, nine, three, seven is our number. So the mayor of Maysville will be live and in studio with us, probably wearing a hoodie at about um, <laughs> at about 7.05 this morning, and we'll have him for the balance of the hour to try to get into some of the issues. And, I, and I'm, I'm giving a bit of a warning to those who live in the Maysville-Sumter County area. If you got questions, I mean, I would imagine he'll be willing to answer some of the questions on the fly. He wants to bring this to light. I mean, he wants to tell you some of the issues he's had to deal with. I've read a couple of articles. I know more now than I did, but obviously I don't, I'm not as versed in the history um, as he would be. I've got some things that we played off yesterday that I kind of want to go down the road of. I want to begin real quick. Uh, We've given the women's basketball a hard time. Uh, I want to congratulate women's basketball for outrating the NBA. We said yesterday, the Lady Gamecock, Lady Tiger game, and I'm talking about LSU and South Carolina, two of the premier women's basketball programs in America 
had about 1.54, 1.56 million viewers. The Celtics, the legendary Boston Celtics and the Miami Heat had about 1.32 million viewers broadcasting at the same time, 8 o'clock Thursday night. I don't have any idea what that means. To me, it means the NBA is in bad shape. The rise of women's basketball, I mean, I get Title IX, and I get the woke culture and the, the way we celebrate equality and diversity and inclusion in America. Um, but, but the other point I want to make is, I don't know if you saw this news yesterday, but some of these women's basketball, I mean, women's basketball is kind of being, I mean, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's been force-fed. They're making it a priority. I mean, ESPN's made it a priority to kind of, um, I don't want to say force you to like women's basketball, but strongly encourage. Make it readily available. Make it very, very available to the sports um, consumer. So, I mean, if you if you if you're going to be if you're going to be bragging about outrating, outrating uh, let's say you got two of the elite programs, and you're going to be bragging about outrating the Boston Celtics, the legendary Boston Celtics didn't draw as many fans or viewers as the Gamecock uh, LSU Tiger women's basketball. You're going to accept the scrutiny. And I don't know if you saw this yesterday on Twitter or not, but. The LSU Tigers won the women's basketball championship last year and lost $8.4 million. Um, the Lady Gamecocks, I let the cat out of the bag several years ago and some trustee friends of mine said, so don't talk about that. I mean, that's uh, that's kind of taboo. That's off limits. The Lady Gamecocks, I don't have any idea what it is this year, but they lose somewhere north of $5 million, $6 million, $7 million, maybe more than that when you plane when you charter a plane and you fly the women's basketball team to UConn or to Stanford or to LSU, for that matter, to play some of these other elite women's basketball teams, it comes quite the financial um, burden. And um, I just here's what I'm arguing. You ready? When will some of these major universities decide it's not worth it to be good at women's basketball? I mean, if you're a if you're a sports fan, there's some market reality there. There has to be. I mean, I understand people in the South, the Southeastern Conference in particular, understand that football pays the bills. I mean, the the women's basketball team charters planes to go to LSU, to go to Stanford, to go to Connecticut, um, to play these you know high flying, uh, widely broadcast women's basketball. But the money comes out of the football budget. I'm not saying. They go to the Shane Beamer and say, "Hey, can you write us a check to, to charter a plane to go to UConn? It's a big deal. I mean, when when we play UConn in women's basketball, it's a big deal. But at some point in time, the universities have to decide how much is too much to be good at women's basketball. I mean, if you're LSU and you win a national championship and you still lose over eight million dollars, and you're Ole Miss and you're trying to build a women's basketball program that competes with South Carolina and LSU." And you lost over eight million. At what point in time, to the powers to be at these universities, say, "Wow, I mean, we're good at women's basketball, but we're losing ten million dollars a year. That budget's got to be cut." And how inferior is the product if you're not losing eight or ten million dollars a year? You see the point I'm trying to make. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's worth it to try and be good at football. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It is worth trying to be good at college football. I'm not saying it's worth building. You know, student dorm rooms with climbing walls and Starbucks and and spas. I mean, I think that's insane, but but I get it. I mean, you're, you're chasing the buck. You're chasing the money. You're good in football. That pays off. 
I mean, there's there's great value to Clemson's football program. There's even more value to the Alabama, Texas, Oklahoma football programs. There's not a lot of value with being good at women's basketball. I mean, it's fun. I mean, if you're going to play a sport, try to be good at it. But to what extent, to what extreme are you willing, you know, one point, let's say one and a half million viewers in one of the most watched women's basketball games ever, and the two teams combined lost $15 million. See, there you go, looking at it like a business well, again. you got to look at it to some degree. Well, no, you can, well, okay, you're losing a million bucks. We can stand that. I mean, we, we need to be good at women's basketball, but we're losing a million bucks. Yeah, but we can find that. We can stand that. I mean, the football team and the SEC contract and all these other wonderful things that bring money in the door, we can live with that. All of a sudden, hey, hey, you folks that run the women's basketball program at LSU, UConn, South Carolina, and Stanford, you're losing – about $40 million between the four of you, $35 million between the four of you. We need you to clean that up a little bit. So if you start cleaning that up a little bit, I mean, you can't escape market reality completely. I mean, I understand that women's basketball is different. Title IX and women's athletics. I mean, I get all that. And we live in this very inclusive and diverse society. We celebrate. I certainly understand that. But if I'm on the board at USC and somebody slides me a sheet of paper, and I say, wow, we had a good year in women's basketball. Don't want another national championship. Yeah, but look down look down at the bottom of the page. Wow, okay. We lost $9 million. Is it worth $9 million to be good at women's basketball? Can you afford to lose $9 million and be good at women's uh, basketball? That's kind of where, I mean, it was just an interesting story. What was the guy, Clay Travis? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a talk show host, and he's one of these sports guys. And I mean, he's one of the busiest men in America today. Um, but anyway, he's the one that was creating the conversation about uh, about what comes next. Josh, I want to I want to end this segment on a very serious note. Um, we know that Donald Trump lost a defamation trial in uh, New York City, tune of eighty three million dollars. Uh, believe it or not, but E. Jean Carroll and her lawyers were on Rachel Maddow's show last night, and I want you to hear the somber mood. I mean, this is sad, and I want to be very serious for a second. I'm picking on women's basketball, but I want to be as serious as I can be uh, about this issue, this um, sexual harassment, rape, defamation, all these other sorts of things. Um, I mean, in, in essence, this lady is a rape victim, and I think rape victims obviously deserve our, our serious sympathy. I mean, anybody who has ever gone through a traumatic event like that, you would expect them to act in, in, in a very cerebral and ah, anxious sort of fashion. So put us in queue real quick, Josh, because I think this is so important. We can't wait. Um, I mean, you would imagine Rachel Maddow doing the work of the Lord, you know, the journalist allowing the rape victim to be on her show and just show how traumatic and anxious she is as a result of the $83 million defamation case that the New York City judge and jury awarded to the rape victim, E. Jean Carroll. You've talked about using some of Trump's money that you're about to get um, to help shore up women's rights. Do you know what that might be, what that might look like? Yes, Rachel. Yes. Tell me. I had such such great ideas (laughs) for all the good I'm going to do with this money. First thing, Rachel... You and I are going to go shopping. We're going to get completely (laughs) new wardrobes, new shoes, motorcycle for Crowley, new fishing rod for Robbie. Rachel, what do you want? Penthouse? It's yours, Rachel. Penthouse and 
Uh, France? You want France? You want to go fishing nope. in France? No? Oh. All right. All right. Okay. That's a joke. All right. Okay. That's a joke. <laughs> Although, if, if me fishing in France could yeah. do something for women's rights, I would take the hit. You know, I would obviously take one. For the team. I All right, let me, let me, <laughs> as if, as if you need persuasion in that regard. Let me. <laughs> hmm. I mean, that, that, you know, that, wow. I mean, you, you hear the trauma. I mean, you, you hear the, um, the anxiousness, the anxiety, uh, you hear the resolve of a rape victim trying to put their lives back together and get past, you know, a, a tremendously traumatic event. Um, I mean, what do you do with $83 million? I hope she never gets it. I hope she never gets it. I think she's a liar, a fraud, a con. Uh, yeah, I said it. And, and that's disgusting to hear a lady go on Rachel Maddow's show, MSNBC, and celebrate, you, you ready, victimizing a man. I mean, that's what happened here, guys. You wait until the guy becomes a public figure. You wait until well, he's always been a public figure. You wait until the guy is running for public office and you make up these charges from what, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and um, and some liberal judge and liberal jury in a liberal city grants you 83 or a ruling that awards you $83.3 million. You talk about in the courtroom how you want to take this funds and make the world a better place for women, protect women from vicious rapists like Donald Trump. Oh, no. You want to buy Rachel Maddow a penthouse. I mean, that's disgusting. I'm sorry. That is absolutely disgusting and an insult to any woman who has ever dealt with the real trauma of rape. Take a break. Back in a few. Asking you shall receive. Someone called yesterday from Sumter County. We are a, a, a local media outlet to some degree. I mean, we're more in the opinion-giving business than we are the news reporting uh, business. But we did have a caller yesterday from Sumter County concerned about an issue regarding the Maysville. Yeah, the Maysville mayor's situation. Josh ran down the mayor himself. He'll be in studio with us at 7.05. And uh, as Josh said, we'll get it straight from the horse's mouth. What's going on in Maysville, what he's up against, what he's trying to accomplish, who he believes the resistors are. And um, and I'll play journalist for an hour or so. Um, yesterday, we kind of, um, I mean, David was talking about the politicization industry and the uh, the litigation industry, the consulting industry, um, the cost of inequality is something I brought up yesterday. Um, Josh was talking about, well, I mean, yeah, I, I'll agree with you about the, the cost of inequality at the top end of the food chain. I'm talking about income earners. Uh, what about these at the bottom of the food chain? Uh, Josh said he is equally as aggrieved by those fleecing the system, you know, playing the game with these means-tested and non-means-tested welfare programs as he is the hedge fund guy, you know, shuffling papers across the desk and making a billion dollars a year because of loopholes and, and tax, you know, just a, a lot of a multiple, a, a myriad of complications within our tax code and our, and our, you know, private sector that allow certain companies to do certain things. I mean, I don't know how anybody can believe it's okay for Amazon to have a net negative uh, tax liability. I, I just don't for the life of me understand. Something's wrong when that's the case. I mean, something's wrong if Warren Buffett is, is telling the truth when he says the secretary pays a higher percentage of her income in taxes than I do. Well, I mean, Buffett built the machine. I'm not saying Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and Berkshire have been 
as political, but but folks in their camp have been. Um, there's another three words that um that I'm going to use this morning, and we'll try to explain why. Uh, transfer of value. I read a lot yesterday about immigration. Read a lot about the Koch brothers. I'm trying to really understand what the Koch brothers' motivations are, and it's not the brothers; it's the brother. But they have this political action committee, Americans for Prosperity, and they're heavily invested in Nikki Haley. They're heavily invested in some of the Senate races. They made an announcement over the weekend, not a public announcement. They were at some retreat somewhere, and a spokesperson for American for Prosperity said they're not going to invest as heavily in the presidential um, cycle, the presidential Republican primary, because they kind of saw the writing on the wall, and it looked like Haley's battle was too uphill, so they're going to really strategically invest in Senate races. I went back and looked last night at why the Koch brothers would be open border advocates, because they are. I mean, there's no doubt about it. They are open border advocates. They have businesses that are very labor-intensive, and the majority of their businesses, Rev, that are labor-intensive require unskilled labor. So if they can, and here's where I'm using the word transfer of value, if they can transfer the value of an unskilled laborer to a migrant, an immigrant who will work for 50% less, 30% less, 70, whatever that number is. I don't know what that number is, but it's in the Koch's best interest. So if they spend $500 million helping senators get elected and a president get elected, how much do they make in that transfer of value? And I'm talking about the value of labor, the value of a laborer minus just, just absolute unbelievable numbers of immigrants coming to the country. I mean, you know the value of that labor. It's about supply and demand, distorting and manipulating the unskilled labor force. So if you've got, you know, I'm not making up a number here. You've got a million jobs and a million employees. There's going to be a, a fair way to pay people, right? I mean, the supply meets the demand. But if you've got a million jobs, a million American-born employees, and you add two million, you know, migrants, illegally or legally, that are willing to do some of that unskilled labor, what happens to the pay for that? So it's a transfer of value. The value that Josh gets to pick strawberries is much less if there are three more people here illegally that are willing to pick those strawberries. Now, I'll agree, and I think we we all agreed, that the American work ethic ain't what it used to be. I mean, we, we all agreed about, you know, for whatever reason, we look down on people in America today that have to, you know, a little sweat on their brow, dirt under their face. I mean, I think we need to get back to that. But I think America's far better when we build things, when we work with our hands, when we train young men and women to have pride in apprenticeship or some, you know, a welding or pipe fitting or, or whatever it is. But for whatever reason, we, you know, higher education in particular, try to point kids to the financial sector. You know, you don't want to be a worker. You want to be a financier. You don't want to be a, a plumber. You want to be, you don't want to be an electrician. You, you want to be a, you know, a lawyer or a physician or, or one of these real, real skilled labor. Well, I mean, I, I still believe that, that a plumber is every bit as skilled as a lawyer is. I mean, I know he's not educated, but who cares? Uh, but, but anyway, the transfer of value is something the Koch brothers are intimately interested in because the majority of their businesses, and I'm talking about billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars in business interest, it's agrarian, I mean, it's farming, it's manufacturing, it's industrial. So if the Koch brothers spend $50 million, $100 million, Reb, the return on that investment is, I mean, it's, it's 10 to 1 if they can transfer the value 
of that of that mm-hmm. laborer to somebody who will do it for for much less. Let's go to the phones. Phil in Lynchburg. Good morning, Phil. You're on. Morning, gentlemen. Uh, I had a question for you, Ken. Just I don't mean to backtrack so much on you, but you're about the uh, the rape thing with Trump. Didn't they didn't actually convict him of rape? It was just his word or the, what he was saying about her and um, blaming him about the rape. But he wasn't actually uh, convicted or charged with that, right? Ah, uh, no, because he'd been in jail. You know, if you get convicted of rape, you go to jail. The defamation. She made an accusation. He denied the accusation. And Trump, being true to form, said some other colorful things about her. She's not my type. Don't want her. Wouldn't want her if I could have her. And um, and he, she said that defamed her character, defamed her name. And um, and a New York City judge and jury gave her eighty three million dollars. But no, Trump has never been convicted. Never been charged with rape. But the defamation right. is centered around some of the accusations E. Jean Carroll made. Okay. Well, thanks for straightening it out for me. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, a rapist go to jail. Now, now, if you read Twitter, Trump's a rapist walking free. Now, the $83 million is all you can do with a rich, powerful guy. You know those rich, powerful guys, Rev? You grab them wherever, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. I'll never forget when Trump said that. And I'm thinking to myself, most people believe that. I mean, most people believe that rich, powerful man, men get away with things like that. And, uh, I mean, they, they just do. I mean, I'm not, I don't know if it is or not. I'm not a rich, powerful man. But the majority of Americans believe that a rich, powerful man is able to do those sorts of things and get away with it. And that's why I think the majority of Americans say, hey, probably tell the truth. You know, it shouldn't be that way, but it probably is. Um, there are those who take Trump literally, and there are those of us who take him figuratively. At times, you take him literally, but most times... It, it, as a matter of speak, as a kind of a figure of speech is, is the way Trump speaks. But no, um, the reason, I mean, Rachel Maddow was talking about taking these funds and doing good for women who have been rape victims. I mean, that was the, I mean, um, and that's a, an appropriate, serious question that really deserved an appropriate, serious well, answer. I mean, in but my but opinion, it really if goes you're going to be having the discussion. And it goes back to her saying that Trump raped her. Trump's never been charged with rape, but she said that. And then Trump said, that's crazy. But I'll go back and read the transcript again. I read it a couple of years back, and it's unbelievable. I mean, they were in a crowded uh, crowded department store, Bergdorf, you know, one of these real fancy um, New York City boutique department stores. I mean, and, and a lot of people there, they can want a dressing room. And, I, you know, I, I'll go back and read the transcript. We'll, um, I mean, we can play some of the transcript over the uh, – over the air, but uh, the reason I played that this morning is Rachel Maddow, being Rachel Maddow, had E. Jean Carroll and her lawyers talking about the $83 million and what sort of advocacy are they going to provide for rape victims. And she sounded like someone who was traumatized by a rape. And the, the past is haunting her in such a way that she said, shopping, wardrobes, motorcycle, penthouse rachel do you want a penthouse well, i can assure you rachel's got her own money I, mean, I don't know what she makes at msnbc but it's above average means she hadn't been affected by that transfer of uh, value that most unskilled laborers are dealing with in our um in our working class economy take a break we'll be back in just a few moments Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. i mean we spend as much time or as little time on this particular story as we choose to I mean, to me, it's um, 
I have no idea, and I would never insinuate that I have any idea what happened in that department store, in that dressing room. Um, I mean, you get into technicalities of trials. You get into, I mean, a non-consensual kissing. Um, I mean, I'm sorry. You want to be a little bit provocative here? Um, vaginal penetration by a penis. I mean, and there's all kind of stuff in here when you read the transcript and some of the hearings and pro and proceedings. I've read it. I mean, I've read it all, and it's pretty wild about the accusations she's made. Trump denies all these all these accusations. But um, the definition of rape in New York is that last comment I just made, uh, vaginal penetration. And uh, anyway, um, what happened, I don't have any idea. But the the jury in New York at the preliminary hearing, at the first hearing, um, never acute, never, I don't think there was an accusation made. I mean, from what I've read, some of the legal proceedings couldn't convince a judge that it arose to that level. And I think it ended up in some sort of sexual abuse and, um, you know, non-consensual kissing and fondling and all these. I don't have any idea. And once again, was it 20 years ago? Might have been longer, 26 years, 30 years ago, somewhere um, there about he's a candidate for president. And all of a sudden it becomes a big story. Um, I just got to believe if you're a woman and you think you've been raped, you don't wait 30 years to tell someone you think you've been raped. I mean, I'm not laughing about that. I'm certainly not laughing because rape is real. I mean, it's real and it's traumatic and it affects someone's life forever and ever and ever and ever. And some aren't able to overcome the challenges associated with the trauma. But I don't know how you wait 30 years and kind of keep it to yourself until one of these days this this famous guy that maybe you had a fling with, maybe you didn't have a fling with, maybe he forced himself upon you, maybe he didn't force, Maybe it's consensual, maybe it's not, but you wait until the most opportune time imaginable to make it, uh, you know, a public ordeal and a judge and jury in New York City. I mean, that's really the litigation industry that Dave is talking about, and that's why Jefferson, and I, I went back over the weekend and read some things about judiciary and Jefferson. Jefferson was just so nervous about allowing the application of law to be in the hands of people who couldn't be held accountable by the public. I mean, Jefferson basically, now once again, um, I'm ad living here, but Jefferson basically said, politicians are going to screw a lot of things up, but you can vote them out of office. I mean, these judges that are responsible for application of the law to believe they're some holier and, and, uh, and, and, you know, more moral and more ethical. I mean, they're like the rest of us. I mean, they've got a law degree and they've taken an oath, but they're like all the rest of us and to remove them from public scrutiny was really something that Jefferson struggled with. That's why he never wanted to be judiciary. Uh, I mean, he basically said it. Judiciary is not going to be a co-equal branch of government, but but all of a sudden we can't legislate, Rev. The executive branch doesn't sign a law in. The legislative branch vetoes, overrides the veto. I mean, it's the yin and yang of trying to get something done, and it goes to the courts. We don't legislate anymore. We litigate now. I mean, all the big decisions in America are decided where. I mean, the immigration issue in Texas. It's decided where. I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court just made a big decision on behalf of that particular issue, and that's what Jefferson always worried about. you got these damn unelected judges in, in courtrooms all over the country making monumental decisions that, that kind of usurp the authority of the legislative and executive branch. And um, I mean, if someone wants to study kind of some of the concept, I don't know the concept of Jeffersonian 
government was limited government, but there were offshoots there. And one of the offshoots was a, a, a lot of concern about activist judges, a lot of concern about, I mean, I don't think David and Jefferson talked and David said, Hey, put in there the litigation industry, but that's what it's become. I mean, it's become an industry. It's not a cottage industry. It's a huge industry. Um, I mean, look at the, the billboards around the country. Look at all the television ads, the radio ads. I mean, it's, it's litigation industry in America. And I've read where we litigate. I mean, I think I said this yesterday. We litigate as a percent of our GDP what the next seven countries do in total, and their GDPs are nowhere near as big as ours. And I'm not saying litigation is not necessary. I'm not saying that Josh doesn't have a right to sue me or I don't have a right to sue Rev. I mean, we have these disagreements and disputes, and we litigate. I mean, that's the, the kind of the American way. But um, it, it's pretty wild what we've allowed that to to morph and turn into. And last night you heard on MSNBC kind of a celebratory interview of a lady who has been, you know, I mean, the media says she's been raped. The New York City jury said she, well, I mean, I don't think the New York City jury said yay or nay. I mean, they were never challenged or posed with that question. And, um, I mean, there's some articles out there. USA Today has a great article that, that really um, covers what happened in the, um, in the trial. But the jurors concluded that Trump sexually abused Carol. Um, they just don't believe that it met the definition of rape. And, um, and, and once again, sexual abuse, rape, consensual fondling or kissing, non-consensual fondling or kissing. I don't want to get too far down that road because I'm not legally sound enough, believe it or not, to make determinations on what meets the threshold or standard for this charge becoming, becoming that charge. I think you've got to be idiotic to not be concerned about the timing. And the weaponization of our judicial system is alive and well in America. And Trump seems to be kind of ground zero for the one person that they're treating fundamentally different than they are anybody else. Um, The Georgia General Assembly a few days ago formed a committee of six Republicans, three Democrats that are going to investigate Bonnie Willis and the the matter before uh, the election matter that Trump's dealing with in Georgia, one of these trials. Um, I like to refer. I'm a good old boy. You ready, old Bo? Um, and 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 Fonnie Willis went on three separate vacations. I think one was California, one was Florida, and one was Aruba, if I'm not mistaken. She gave him uh, hired three attorneys, two of the attorneys had extensive experience in RICO law, racketeering, and whatnot. The guy that Fonnie Willis is accused, alleged, I mean, I make it clear, there's allegations there. I mean, I don't know if they were together or not, but the allegation is that Fonnie Willis gave, you know, the guy that she was having an affair with the better job. In other words, the two of the jobs paid 200 bucks an hour. The job that Davenport got paid 250 bucks an hour. He had the least experience in RICO and racketeering law, but he got the better of the job. And the Georgia General Assembly, the Senate in particular, appointed a nine-committee, uh, a nine-member committee that will review all the um, ins and outs of what Fonnie Willis did. Did she play favorites? Did she personally gain? Because that's where it gets legal. I mean, Fonnie Willis can hire her boyfriend. 
I mean, I don't think there's a law against that. But if her boyfriend takes some of the $656,000 he's paid and the two of them go on a vacation to Aruba, she's personally gained. I mean, he may have taken the money that she paid him $250 an hour. I mean, the dude collected $656,000, and that's a lot of money. I mean, that's taxpayer dollars from the state of Georgia. And, you know, I would imagine, Rev, you can hire someone to work on a RICO case who doesn't have a lot of RICO experience. I mean, that's your prerogative. I don't think it makes any sense, and you kind of raise yellow flags when you do that. But but the the legal matter that the Georgia General Assembly are trying to figure out is, did Fannie Willis personally gain from hiring her boyfriend and then going on vacations with her boyfriend that could have been paid for out of the money that taxpayers budgeted to go after Trump? I mean, that's kind of, in essence, uh, where that story is. And, and I'll make a prediction. The voters are beginning to sense that this is lawfare, this is, you know, um, political persecution in the name of the application of justice. And, I mean, we've already seen this. Every indictment Trump has, he becomes a more popular political figure. I mean, that's a bit encouraging. I, it's not encouraging that people don't trust their, their justice system, but it's encouraging that people see what's happening with, with Donald Trump. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. So you're saying we're talking about funny, and there's no— Take a, take a load off Fanny. Exactly. I paused there so you could say that. Okay. But th- there's nothing in the that's law— That's a little act. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, there's nothing in the law that would prevent her from hiring, uh, to use your term, old boat, her boyfriend. No, there's, there's, no not, not at all. I just don't think—no. I mean, you, if, you're, if you're an attorney and you've been in, you, you've been, you find yourself in a situation where you're going after a prominent politician— on some of the racketeering laws. Now, RICO's kind of a catch-all. I mean, it's hard to believe that we're going after a former president with RICO as the statute. I mean, that, that's kind of a catch-all. I'm not sure what he did, and there's not an exact law against it, but he did something. So RICO's kind of the, um, the, the edge of the cabinet where you put your keys, your wallet, your cell phone, you know, your diet pill, whatever. I mean, it's just kind of a catch-all there. I don't believe there's a law that says Dave Baker can't hire his wife or girlfriend or boyfriend, whoever. Uh, but but once you kind of mix the money and you go on a trip to Aruba and he may he was paid six hundred fifty six thousand dollars, I think it gets very concerning there. Uh, it's just a bad decision. I mean, it's a real bad decision by someone who appears to be a bit incompetent, but very politically motivated. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning. Yeah, good morning, guys. The, the thing about it is all these AGs ran for their office, saying they were going to get Trump. But the, the thing about E. Jean Carroll, she wrote her memoir, remember it came out in 2019, and said that Trump raped her. And George Conway, who was Kellyanne Conway's husband, told her, because Trump said, I don't know the woman, never seen her. I don't know how many times you've been out on a, a campaign trail and people walk up and they take a picture with you, you know, a woman or whatever, and you have no idea who they are or even remember it. But that's kind of the situation Trump was in. He used to go to all the, you know, the parties and people loved him to death. So Eugene Carroll just happened to have a, a picture of him and Trump or her and Trump back in the, the 90s 
when he was on the circuit, and they used that picture to prove that he knew her. He says he doesn't know her from Adam's house cat, but they didn't charge him with rape. She, the the charge was rape, but the the jury changed the charge, which is highly illegal, and and said that he probably sexually harassed her, so found him guilty by that. So they completely flipped the situation around, but George Conway's the one that funded all of that. And, of course, they found a nice, sympathetic jury in, in, in New York. So that's where we are today with that. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, that was hard to do to find a judge and a jury. And um, I mean, there's a certain statute in New York that applies to rape. And it's very specific. And the jury, I think, went to the judge and said they didn't believe it met that threshold. Could they charge with sexual harassment? And, you know, I don't know if that's uncommon or not. I'm not a lawyer. I mean, I try to stay out of courtrooms. I try to stay out of legal proceedings and situations. But but I think the majority of Americans see this for what it is. It's the litigation industry, credit to David, on full display, um, the political persecution of someone the powers to be don't want to be president of the United States. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Occasionally, we disguise ourselves as reputable. I mean, we've accepted that we aren't. But occasionally, uh, a story comes along and gives us an opportunity, Rev. We'll make a mess of it. But we have an opportunity <laughs> to be reputable and uh, uh, kind of uh, make contributions to uh, journalistic interests in improving the lot and lives of common Americans. Um, see, I've still got a speech in me. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, hardworking common Americans there you go. that I want to work tirelessly on behalf <laughs> of. Remember, remember, guys, coal miners don't work tirelessly. Construction workers don't work tirelessly. It's only politicians that work tirelessly on behalf of the American people. Never I am from small-town USA. I mean, the name of the podcast is No Stoplights. I'm a college dropout from a town with no stoplights. Small town USA is very near and dear to my heart. I mean, Rev kind of jokes around about how emotionally invested I can get in some of these conversations about small town USA, and I've watched it struggle. I mean, the, the impetus of Trump's movement is really centered around not necessarily income inequality, but opportunity inequality. Um, you got to move to big cities to find good jobs and a quality of life that we can all be uh, proud of. And I believe as we neglect rural America, we neglect a part of Americana. I mean, I really believe that. I'm a Southern boy, so I think Southerners have some small towns figured out better better than anybody. But I can't prove that with an analysis of survey. It's only a matter of personal opinion. We got pitched a story yesterday. Um, someone called in and said, hey, man, You've got an audience that cares about politics. You've got an audience that seems to be highly engaged. There's something going on in a town in Sumter County with the Maysville, former mayor, current mayor, city council. I've spent some time in local government. I understand how confusing at times it can be. I understand that the majority of people point fingers at what's wrong but don't want to get in the arena. I mean, that's probably, in all honesty, the smart thing to do is stand on the periphery and say, hey, all these things are wrong. Why don't somebody go in and fix it? So I'm always not sympathetic, but um, but respectful of someone who decides to kind of get in the mix and see if they can, can make a difference. I don't know the details. I don't know the specifics. I read an article yesterday 
to try to get up to speed. I read something again this morning to try and get up to speed. But we've got someone kind of boots on the ground in our studio um, this morning. Mayor Chris Brown of Maysville is here. Um, I'll let him tell a little bit about himself. But uh, but I want to frame it by saying, you know, this is our best effort to be somewhat journalistic. Now, now rest assured, when Chris leaves, we're back in the opinion monster business because that's what we uh, do best. But Chris has um, kind of a story that I think you'll find interesting and a desire to try and make a community he's decided to call home a better place. Mayor, good morning. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks so, for inviting me. So you me don't here. sound like me. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what brings you to Maysville? Where do you come from? And, and what was, once again, the impetus to get you uh, to call Maysville home? You know, a year and a half ago, we were living in Payson, Utah. Um, we had had a, a career there. My wife, a nurse, me, a teacher, educator, coach uh, at a high school level, at a university level. We took a trip out here to move our daughter about three years ago. Uh, dropped her off at a 350-acre farm. Her father-in-law one day grabbed us and said, you know what, you need to come drive through this ghost town of Maysville. And we drove through, um, were amazed by the architecture, came across a home that was falling down. And we went in and checked it out a little bit. And a month later, my wife and I were speaking to each other and saying, you know what, is this haunting you, this house? And we sold everything and moved out and made Maysville our home. Okay, moving to Maysville, renovating an old house that Sherman didn't burn down is one thing. <laughs> Becoming politically engaged is another. So you come to Maysville from Utah. You, you, you start working on this old home. You want to try to make it something to communicate. Be proud of. Don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's what it sounds like to me. And all of a sudden, you find yourself dealing with politics, bumping in to politics, understanding better the local flavor of politics? You know what? That's, that's interesting. I've never been involved in politics. In fact, I was, as a junior in high school, elected in my school to go to Boy State, which is to teach us about politics. I literally crawled under the benches and snuck out to go play football. So I was not politically inclined at all. I just, while we were in Maysville fixing up homes, I had people come to me and, and tell me that there are things that were happening that were not great. I had no desire to run, but it looked like there was nobody that was going to run for the election November 7th. And so I thought, you know what, I better put my body in the situation, my mind in the situation to, to help out here. So what are these things, Mayor? What, what are these things that you think need to be addressed correctly? I mean, I've read some of this. It sounds outlandish. It sounds crazy. But, but also accept the media has a job to make a story uh, bigger than maybe the story really is. What What is the issue in Maysville that you find so concerning? Um, can I just tell you where it started? Sure, absolutely. We got elected on the 7th. Um, we walked into the building on the 14th, and the building that the city has been using was, uh, there were chairs all over the place. Everything was being moved around, and I walked in, and I said, can I help? Is there something that I need to do? to my clerk. And the clerk says, no, we just need to move into this other office. I said, is there a reason for it? He says, no, we just need to move into this small office. So everything was being moved to a different office. And I had left, uh, or just getting ready to leave. And I asked her, because I was going to be there early in the morning the next day, if I could have a key. And the answer was no. 
no, you can't have a key. And I said, I, I don't understand. She says, no, you can't have a key. So I just left. I talked with my wife a little bit. I thought it was a little bit strange. But the next day showed up at 9 o'clock ready to get things going. And I asked for a few things so that I could get an understanding of the financials, get an understanding of who the employees were, just to get a, a basic understanding. And the clerk told me, no, um, you need to get your boots on the ground ready to go. I've got things for you to do. And we went through that day, and I asked for a key at the end of the day, and she said, no, you can't have a key. So at this point, I'm, I'm wondering, what is going on here? Why can't I have a key to the building to be able to get in? <clears throat> so I started doing a little bit of research to find out who actually owned the building, and it wasn't the city. It had been transferred from the city to a 501c3 called the Town of Maysville CDC. And... It's not a bad thing. The CDC, uh, the 501c3, has a great mission, or it did have a great mission to be able to improve the state of Maysville from economic to socioeconomics to whatever the town needs. So it was transferred in there basically to get funds to be able to build it, and they got grants federally, state. There were donations from the city to build this museum and a learning center, beautiful building. Um, Yet it never came out of that 501c3. It stayed in there. And during a process that I wasn't here for, the city council voted to actually um, abolish the board, which the council sat on, the city council sat on, and totally take the city out of it. And now it's basically owned by a different entity. Can, can I go back half a step? Who authorized the transfer of the building from being owned by the city of Maysville to the 501c3? Who would have the authority to make that decision? City council. So the city council of Maysville made a decision to take a city asset, that particular building, and transfer ownership to a 501c3. Correct. Okay. Um, and the 501c3 is to basically raise the standard of living in in Maysville in general. Yes. Where does the 501c3 get its funding from? It can get its funding from foundations, uh, government grants, donations. It can do a lot more than probably what a city can do as far as raising funds. So who is in charge of the 501c3? At this point now, um, on April 11th, 2023, the former mayor and two council voted to take the city off of the board of the 501c3 and totally take the city out of it. And they elected a new board. And so presently, it's a new board of five people that I don't know. One person, I think, is from Maysville, but then the former mayor and her husband. Do we have any financial records I mean, I got to believe you know the standing financially of the city of Maysville being the mayor. No. How, how can that be possible? I'm basically locked out of the building. So you have been elected mayor of Maysville and have zero information regarding its budget, what its bottom line is, where its revenue comes from, what its expenditures are. I've, I've got a few of those documents, but I'm not. How did you get those documents? Uh, initially, I just started collecting them. I was given 
the clerk gave me a few of those things, but I go in the office periodically and go through what I can get into. Now, I'm sorry. Does the clerk work for you, the city? Because right now you're the chief executive of the city. Correct. So, so does the clerk work for the city of Maysville or the 501c3? I don't know who she thinks she works for. I think she works for the Who she paid by? The city. Okay. Then she works for the city. Correct. I mean, that's clear. If she is compensated by the city, she is a city employee she answers to the city council and mayor, and if she's not, th- th- there's a violation there, a clear violation, a dereliction of duty, uh, mind you. So so what sort of legal avenues have you tried to address the issue that you find yourself in? I mean, you're from Utah. Welcome to South Carolina. I mean, you're finding <laughs> out the hard way, but welcome to South Carolina. Rough and tumble, small town uh, politics. I want to help you. I mean, because I read the article, I think I – have somewhat of an understanding, have a little experience in, in that world. But if the clerk works for you and the clerk is not responding to your solicitations, then the clerk is in violation of the law, period. Um, is there, I got to ask you this, has there been an interest in making the clerk aware of how in violation of her, her, um, her job description she is? Yes. And her responses are? Well, we, uh, in a council meeting, moved to terminate her position. The council would not second or move on it. How many council members are in Maysville? Four. Who made the motion? Did a member of council make a motion to basically exterminate her employment? Myself, Okay, you made the motion. Nobody seconded um, the motion. Correct. Okay. Um, Have you pursued other legal remedies? Has there been... Uh, you know, uh, an attempt made to communicate with the Municipality Association. Has there been an attempt with the AG's office, SLED, law enforcement in general, Sumter County Sheriff's Department? Absolutely. So an- initially, not being able to get the keys, uh, there came to a point where I just basically said, I need a key. She says, you're not going to get one. So I did call the sheriff. The sheriff came over. Um, he went through the process of trying to get a key. She finally... With a call to um, Mr. Ed Miller, gave us a key because there was going to be even a a funeral procession that was going to come through there. And so I just begged to have a key so that we could take care of that family so that they could meet after the funeral. So I did get a key there, but the sheriff has been informed. They have all the documentation. SLED has been informed, yet SLED says this is really not our jurisdiction to be able to assist here. They are a supporting agency more times than not. They're not lead investigators on some of these county issues. They defer to kind of local law enforcement. And if local law enforcement needs SLED's assistance or support, then SLED is always there. Is that kind of the, the message you got? That's what I got. Uh, the Municipal Association has been great, yet their their job is education. And they don't have any legal authority. No. So they would want to educate us. They want to help us out. They want to teach us how to do things better. Uh, we need a lot of help in that area. So there's nothing really that I have gotten legally from anybody. I've asked a few attorneys that have maybe been in the situation. I've called former mayors or mayors presently that are going through some of these different things. They said, this may be a long process for you. Um, our code in Maysville was changed either in 21 or 22 that said the mayor may not uh, terminate the clerk. It has to go through the council. so Which stands to reason because America could have a vendetta Correct. against a clerk and single-handedly 
dismiss someone of her job and not be supported by the council. Let's take a break, Josh. I want to take a break um, and get back to the mayor here of Maysville. Let's better understand the situation. And um, I mean, I guess I'm trying to angle for some sort of resolution. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Mayor Chris Brown of Maysville is with us, um, formerly of Utah. Probably wishes he's still in in Utah, <laughs> dealing with the um, with, with small town politics. And I'm not I'm not accusing anybody of anything. But but you know, if it smells like this, it probably is this. If it walks like this, it probably um, is that. What what is your? I mean, what what are the most pressing questions that you need answers to? Um, I mean, obviously, you can't get a key to the building. Is that the building where city council meetings are held? It is. And you can't get a, bu- a key to that building. But technically, you don't have a claim to that building if the building is now owned by the 501c3. Correct. Okay. I mean, they have a leg to stand on. Um, I mean, I'll make an accusation. He won't, but I will. You ready? I mean, the 501c3 is to launder money. I mean, the gr- grants make their way to the 501c3. 501c3 money goes to do X, Y, and a little bit of Z. And Z may be not quite exactly what the contributions or donations or, or government grants were intended to be. I mean, that's why you create this um this this line of separation or this this wall of separation, and it creates uh, a more flexible environment to do some things with uh, with funds. Um, so, so you believe if you had a more willing clerk, I mean, if if the clerk were more willing to support the mayor. You could get to the bottom of, of some answers. You can't single-handedly fire a clerk, nor should you be able to. I mean, I think the council should have to vote on whether to replace someone or not. Has there been that effort? Yes, sir. And? Didn't work out very well. That's when you made the motion. It didn't get any second. And, um, okay. I mean, that that's, um, has anybody in the delegation here I am meddling in businesses. Has anybody in your legislative delegation been made aware of the situation you find yourself in? I think all of them know now. Um, a lot of them are just saying work through it, relations, create relations that are going to work. Um, I think we're to the point where relations are strained enough that somebody possibly is going to need to step in for us. Has there been any, <coughs> excuse me, any, forensic accounting or auditing done to any of the books relating. I mean, you're, you're not able to see the 501c3 books, correct? No. no. I mean, and, and, but, but you're able to see the Maysville city books. Correct. Has there been any sort of financial audit or forensic audit or analysis done on the, um, on the books of Maysville? No, but we would welcome that. We would welcome that. So you're basically saying that I'm at loggerheads. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. And I'm trying to raise awareness. Correct. Is is that fair? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Are there any citizens in your city who seem to be alarmed at the situation the city finds itself in that have stepped up and want to help? Absolutely. The first meeting that we went to, there were two people there at a city council meeting. And then we had some of my family and friends come to the second one. And there was probably six to 10 people there. There are average now anywhere from 50 to 70 people at every city meeting now they are aware their eyes are open to what's going on they're excited to be a part of the process to rebuild and do some of the things that we would like to have we need a grocery store we need laundromat in town we need some just basic 
resources that people can live. If you're not able to hold the council meetings in the former city property, where are you holding the council meetings now? You know what? We still get access. The clerk will open up that room that we can use it. But at this point, I'm coming to the conclusion that that's not going to be our building right now. Um, but we have been paying the lights, the sewer, the water, the insurance on this building that we do not own. And so all of those have been supposedly cut off. They were cut off two months ago. Yet a clerk and one of the council wrote checks just this month to pay for those things again with direction not to. And local law enforcement is aware of this situation. Yes, sir. Are they actively investigating? Do we know this? No. Okay. Um, I guess I got work to do today <laughs> after after the show. Lean on some some friends of mine. I mean, I think it's a um, I mean, it's a it, it's a genuine dude trying to do the right thing for a community, and is finding that you know if you're not from here, not about here then um, you don't need to worry about what happens here. It's very common. I mean, it's not because you're from Utah. I don't sound like us. Rest assured. I mean, that's just kind of the nature of small-town Southern politics. I wish it weren't the case. But um, from reading the article, from hearing what you're telling me, I mean, I think I have a good understanding of kind of where you find yourself and how helpless you feel. But um, the, the, we, we need records of the transfer from the city to the 501c3 of those books. And then we need uh, records of a forensic accounting of where the money is, where the money went, where the money came from, just a clerical accounting of, um, of what all five, you know, where all the money is and where all the money, where all the money went. Um, are, are you, are you distraught? I mean, obviously you're distraught and frustrated. I mean, you're not, you're not willing to throw the towel in. Oh, heck no. Okay. This has become a battle now. Okay. My, my wife And you just you. got sworn in in January? <laughs> in, in November. Oh, in November. Okay. So you've been on the job two or three months. Correct. Okay. Well, you're finding, I mean, you're learning as you go. You got anything to address? Well, I, I, have, a, I have a question. So you've told your story, recently moved to South Carolina, recently moved to Maysville. You ran for mayor. How do you think it is you got elected as mayor? You know what? Interesting question. Um, I love the people of Maysville. During the, the year and a half of just being part of the town, being part of the people, I started the campaign and visited every home, had a chance to shake hands with people. Twice we were, went around the town just to find out what they needed. The second time around, I really wanted to know what they wanted. What is it that you want in this town? We, we created a list of about 15 things and even ranked them. Number one came out to be a grocery store. We have no place to, to shop except for Sumter or go to uh, Dollar General in, in what's the town, uh, Timminsville. Or, so we're struggling that way. Does anybody, I mean, this is a, 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 to me, this is a very central question. If the 501c3 in question has accepted state federal grants, I mean, they're subject to a FOIA. Has anybody made a FOIA request yes. to, to the 501c3? And? Um, it was just recent that that happened. I don't know what the results are right now, if that information has come but in. But the FOIA request has been made. Correct. Um, okay. And that was done by a, a citizen, a private citizen, from what I understand. It's a conundrum, <laughs> is what it is. We find ourselves in conundrums 
every uh, every now and then. Well, I mean, this radio show broadcast in Sumter County. I mean, we've got a lot of politically active and engaged folks in Sumter County who probably want to help you. Um, is there a way they can help? I mean, if someone lives in Maysville or not, they hear your story, they understand politics, they want to see you do well, want to see Sumter County do well, want to see Maysville um, do well. How do you invite those people to try to help improve the situation that you find yourself in? I would give them my cell phone right now and they could call me well, anytime. I, mean, I, I would do that. I mean, there, there may be somebody out there, political and legal, that, that want to try to intervene and help you. The most important thing I think you can do today is FOIA, you know, the um, the financials of the 501c3. Because once again, if they have accepted a state or federal grant, I mean, they, they have exposed themselves to the normalcies of, of FOIA, freedom of information. And I think once you gather that information, it gives you a much, hander, a much stronger hand to play. Is it your desire to transfer the building in the 501c3 back to, let, let me ask you this, is there a financial transaction in the transference of the building? Was the building gifted to the 501c3, or was there money paid to the city for the property? Just a regular transfer of $10. Okay, so it was symbolic in nature. Correct. The financial, yeah, see, I, I don't, there's some There's some shenanigans there. Uh, that, that's, um, that's a little bit odd that a city asset owned by the taxpayers would be transferred to a 501c3 at far less than market value. I mean, if it's transferred to the 501c3 at market value, I think you've got to dispute about whether you should do it or not, but there was reasonable compensation or reasonable financial gain made by by the city. But transferring a property owned by taxpayers to a 501c3 for little or no money, I think is, I mean, that that's, ah, I, I, I think there's, well, I mean, obviously, I, I don't want to say what I think. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, you and, folks have listened to me long enough. I mean, I know what I think. And is there a legal lease on file for the city to use the building that's well, I mean, owned the by the Well, I mean, the Freedom of Information would reveal all that. I mean, if you yeah. get a Freedom of Information and get a um, – I mean, the Municipal Association has a lawyer. I mean, they've got counsel on staff. I mean, I'm sure some of their counsel could help you. Let's you and I stay in touch. Okay. But, but I, I want to do this. Give your cell phone number so if somebody out there – because I've read about – I mean, there, there was a confrontation – in one of these meetings, I mean, do you care to talk about that at all? I mean, it got a little bit physical in one of these meetings. And I wasn't at that meeting. Uh, there was a former councilman that went down that just wanted the agenda for the day, for the meeting. He went down there, went in, was talking with the clerk, and an individual got face-to-face with him. Uh, the clerk stepped in, pushed the other person away. And they called the police on the former councilman. So the sheriff came down, investigated. I think, from what I hear, the the case has been dropped. Give your cell phone. So if anybody out there wants to try and sign up and help and be and be an ally, um, I mean that, that that we can help in that way. And um, and we'll try to see what we can find out in some alternative avenues. Still a Utah number eight zero one three six zero five 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 two. So Chris Brown, 801-360-5552. I'd love any help that I can get. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Keep fighting the good fight, and we'll help in, um, in some of these ancillary ways that I think we can um, we can help. I think we all kind of sort of know what the question is. It's always the question in politics. You ready? Where's the money? <laughs> I mean, what, what is my yep. saying, Rev? <laughs> Money's the answer. No. Now what's the question? Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Take a break. Back in a few.
I don't live in Maysville, and I'm not from Utah, but I could lend a helping hand. I mean, the, the, these would be the certain circumstances and situations that I have learned over my 20 some odd years of being in and out of politics. Um, it's not protocol, it's who to call. When situations like this arise and you find yourself helpless, it's not protocol, it's who to call. And a gentleman from Utah just locating here with the best of intent, with the absolute most sincere intent imaginable, on air and off air, this guy's genuinely trying to make a small town less corrupt. And that's the problem, guys, corruption. I mean, we know uh, the question is, why do you take a city asset, transfer it to a 501c3? Because it gives you um, more flexibility in how you can expend funds that make their way into your coffers. I mean, that's just, that's kind of the oldest trick in, in the book. And this guy's genuinely trying to make a difference in a small town that is facing its struggles. And here's what they're trying to do. Wait him out. Just hope he quits. Hope he leaves. I hope he doesn't. But he believes that his answer is in protocol. I believe that his answer is in who to call. Progress goes much slower in protocol. It accelerates. You get situations expedited much quicker when you know who to call. And uh, there's obviously a lot of public interest in this story after our call yesterday that brought brought it out to, brought it to light for us and the listeners. Um, Chris said his phone and text started ringing. Hey, they're talking about this on the radio, and that's why you know, we were able to connect and get him in the studio today. And even since his segment this morning, I've received uh, some feedback and emails that say, hey, you know, thanks for being on this story. Appreciate a great segment, that sort of thing. So there's obviously public interest here. Yeah, I'd probably take that job for a small fee. I mean, I think I could help him down the road of, <laughs> of getting, some things, <laughs> getting some things answered. Let's go back to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You know, here's the problem, kid. You to, uh, stop corruption. You got to have uncorrupt people to stop it. You have to have uncorrupt agencies to stop other agencies from being corrupt. So, you know, if you if you got a corrupt situation like that, then you got to have uh, uh, a law enforcement agency that's willing to stop the corruption instead of being part of the corruption. But you know, uh, you were talking about uh, this whole thing with Trump and the whole rape thing. And it goes back to racism, too. And I'll just leave it at this, and I have another question. I said, you know, when you call people that aren't, you, you call everything racist, it kind of takes away from what, from real racism. When you call everything a rape, it kind of takes away from a real rape. Now, some of these people say everything's a rape in their minds. You know, a husband having sex with his wife to have a baby in some of these women's minds is a rape. But I'm telling you, some of these things that these guys are getting accused of is unwarranted. I'll just leave it at that. But, you know, Ken, I was going to ask you, what do you think we need to do with this whole situation? Because it really seems like there are people. In other words, what do we need to do about the, the latest attack to kill some of our soldiers? You know, the instinct that I used to have would be to they'll bomb everybody there take all of our armies, our Air Force, our Navy, and level everything to the ground. And if the Russians don't like it, turn around and whip their butt. If the Chinese don't like it, they turn around and whip their butt. But, you know, it's easy to say that when you know when they can be doing the butt whipping. And it's, and it's also easy to say that when you don't have children that maybe have to be sent over there to fight some of these damn wars. But what do you think, Ken, 
that Iran or any of those other countries do anything about somebody telling them what to do. And did you see the United Nations was in on the attack on Israel? I think the cathedral is behind a lot of this stuff, and I think they're trying to cause this stuff to happen. I don't think it's just they want you to think that it's just some militant Islamic group. Well, trust me, somebody's telling that militant Islamic group what to do. And I'm, I'm telling you this. You dig what I'm saying, but I wonder what you I wonder what you think, Ken. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. I told Josh this morning that I want to do an entire show. Trump is a radical personality, right, Josh? I'm gonna go back to our meeting or not our meeting. Our, we 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 shared a few words. I mean, Josh brings this sheet every morning with all these Fox guests that they offer, and we check them off and we agree. Okay, let's talk to this one, but not this one. Uh, you know, that's kind of interesting. That's not very interesting. I told Josh this morning. I said, Josh. And Rev, you've not heard this. Um, Trump is a radical figure. I mean, he's a radical political figure. He suits or fits the definition of, uh, wow, man, that guy's different. I mean, that, but there's nothing radical about his agenda. I mean, there, there's nothing radical about his agenda. What if Trump's agenda matched his personality? I mean, Breeze is talking about what do we do? Well, I mean, I think we're going to have to be very radical. I don't think it's good enough to elect a radical man and personality as president. I think that radical man and personality has to execute a radical reformation in government. Um, you know, what, what does that include? Well, I think you put radical issues on the table. Is it radical to say that on Trump's first day, we're not a member of NATO any longer? That's real radical. It might be the right thing to do, though. Is it radical to say that we're no longer going to be a member of of, uh, of, did I say NATO or United Nations? You said NATO. Okay, United Nations. I mean, we're, we're going to lease the world headquarters of the UN. Uh, and I know Bretton Woods, and I know the post-Second World War, and I know the UN's in, in New York, and I know a lot of real, you know, famous and, and authoritative um, dignitaries come to New York once a year, and we have this big, you know, meeting, And but, but we're not going to be a part of that anymore. I mean, these transnational, you know, multinational organizations, we don't believe it's in our best interest. I mean, we're America firsters. And we can prioritize American interest without all these organizations that have hundreds of thousands of employees, and we're not sure what they do. In fact, we're finding out now some of these employees may have been involved in slaughtering Jewish children, paid by the United Nations. I mean, imagine that. I mean, we know that now that, um, you know, a couple of dozen, some of these U.N. workers were a part of the genocide committed against Israeli children in the, um, in the situation with the mosque. We know that now. So instead of a radical man and figure, let's have a radical agenda. Um, how many of you could live with the fact that today in America, your child, three African-American soldiers from Georgia are no longer with us because they were on the border between Syria and Jordan and killed by an Iranian-sponsored drone attack? I mean, how many of you are okay with that? Um, I mean, I, I know this. I think there's great honor in dying on behalf of your nation, but I think we all question why would three U.S. soldier uh, men and women be on the Jordanian-Syrian border exposed to Iranian drone threat? I mean, I want to know that. So, so, so we're patrolling the Syrian-Jordanian border, and an Iranian drone kills three of our U.S. members of the armed services. How can that be? Why? I mean, let, let, let's, let's radically reform our government. That's, that's the, I mean, to me, that's the central generational 
question. It's not good enough to elect a radical individual. You've got to radicalize some of the issues, some of the agenda, some of what your priorities are. And, I mean, is it radical to say we're no longer going to be a member of the U.N.? Yes. Is it radical to say we're no longer going to be a member of NATO? Yes. And I'll tell you the response I get, Josh. I get a lot of, wow, that's crazy. And I'm going, okay, well, tell me the benefit of paying three-quarters of the freight and having 10% of the vote. And you know what? Most people, when you, you sound a little bit intelligent, um, and all of a sudden they say, okay, he's not a moron. I mean, he, this guy knows a little bit about what he's talking about. So when you, when you confront that to one of these sympathizers, and I'm talking about these, these globalist transnationalists, I mean, when they say, well, that's absurd to, to, to say we're not going to be a member of NATO. And I'm going like, why is that absurd? And then you quote a couple of stats, and they're like, well, I mean, it's just absurd. I mean, it's just a CNN said it's absurd. And the New York Times said it's absurd. You see where I'm headed? It is more radical for America today to be a member of NATO than it is not. It makes less sense for us to be a member of NATO today than us to not be a member of NATO today. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Linda and Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning. Good morning. It has been an interesting morning. So it has been. I call for one thing, and I want to talk about something else. Um, my husband always believed that Trump was getting the black man treatment, and I believe so, too. <laughs> I could not convince anyone that he wasn't convicted of rape. So now I've heard it this morning that he was not convicted of rape, but some silly, I don't even know if you can want to say it's a ruling, but um, I think it's kind of strange that these women 30, 40 years later, 15 years later, come out of the woodwork. The 70s was the, the age of the woman. We were free to do whatever we wanted to do. Now, we did what we wanted to do, or our parents did what they wanted to do, and now it's rape. And I don't know why there's not a, a, a limit on the amount of time that when you supposedly got rape isn't inactive. I, I truly don't know, and I wish there was, because you make a mistake. You slept with somebody, and then you regretted it. And now it became rape because you regretted it. It's, that's just totally wrong. And if Trump rubbed up against a woman, yeah, that was rape. And I think that those things need to be taken in consideration. 30, 40, 15 years later, you're complaining about something that happened that didn't bother you then, but only bothered you when he got money and recognition. And on to the Maysville thing, um, clerk is probably the mayor's the former mayor's cousin or relative um and i was in maysville in november with a group of people i had no idea there was a new mayor because the mayor was the former mayor was introduced as the present mayor at this event and if he is the new mayor he should be attending these events being held at that museum but um Information Act, it, it will be probably for, by the time he's telling them up before he really gets any information because we all know, and as you keep saying, there's a reason why it became a 501. There's a reason why he can't have a key to the office. 
There's a reason why the clerk of court doesn't work, really work for him, but work for the former mayor, and that's where her loyalties is. And I'm happy to see that he, he came here. Yes, he has that voice that we know he's not Southern, but sometimes... Linda, we got a hard break, top of the hour. I'm sorry, back in a few. You know, one of the beauties of talk radio is the guardrails are very expensive. I mean, we can say things that most others can't say and get away with it. And, I mean, I think the majority of our listeners accept. I don't know that they appreciate my sarcasm, but I think they accept my my sarcasm as part of the shtick that we have over the uh, over the airwaves. I think the, the, the question that we're all asking ourselves is how does a white guy from Utah get elected mayor of Maysville? I mean, I, I don't, you know, we're not going to verbalize that. I will. I mean, I'll say it. I was a white guy from Utah um, get elected mayor's, um, uh, Mayor Maysville. My, I mean, I could be real sarcastic. You ready? Maybe there's more Mormons in Maysville than I thought there was. <laughs> let's, let's go to the – but I don't do that to insult anybody. Dr. Will Bold is here with us, and we were sharing some, I don't know, some information with one another earlier, and we're talking about who has more tolerance, liberals <laughs> or conservatives. I mean, I have what I believe in, guys, and I am passionate about what I believe. But I have all the tolerance you could imagine for somebody who sees the world fundamentally different than I. Maybe I'm playing too much of a homer here. I don't think the other side has as much tolerance for our humor, our sarcasm, our beliefs, our dispositions, our political policies. Um, you know, it, it's a little bit like Trump is all bad. I'll accept that all of Trump isn't good. I mean, I know that. I know there are things about Trump that, that I don't like. I'm sure he's done a million things that I wouldn't approve of. But I'm tolerant of some of those shortcomings. I'm tolerant of some of those personal blind spots that he has because he's somewhat of a crusader on behalf of a populist political agenda that I find very relatable. Let's go to the phone. Charles in Lamar. Good morning. Good morning. You know, uh, Mayor Brown brought some things to light, but uh, there were some things that he didn't say that were in that article that appeared in the item that was co-written by a reporter from the uh, Post and Courier. Uh, The previous mayor was named Jerlene Miller, and her husband, Ed Miller, and she and one other person run that 501c3, which now owns Town Hall. He, Ed Miller, receives a salary for running it. And when they took the grants and spent all the money that they spent to remodel that building, guess who got hired as a construction superintendent to oversee construction and get paid his uh, his uh, fees for doing that? That also happened to be Ed Miller who runs a 501c3, the former mayor's wife. And I, um, I'm curious why Mayor Brown didn't bring those things up. Maybe he, uh, he, maybe he didn't want to make it a personal attack. But that's not personal, guys. That's just, that's just wrong. And uh, I think uh, corruption is the correct word. Have a great day. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. I think the reason may have been um, there's a, uh, an investigation. I mean, and some public officials are hesitant. I mean, I wasn't smart enough. I'd say anything at any time. But, I mean, a, a lot of public officials believe that if something is being investigated, they could affect or impact the investigation 
Um, I mean, you've heard politician after politician after politician. I don't want to comment on an ongoing investigation. Um, that seems to be modus operandi for the FBI director when he appears on Capitol Hill. And they say, can you tell us if there were such and such? Uh, I can't comment on a, a pending investigation. I can't comment on an ongoing investigation. Um, I mean, the guy's genuinely trying to do good by a small town, South Carolina, a small town in in South Carolina. I mean, I think the majority of you, what was the old saying? You don't have to hit this country boy in the face with a wet mop. I mean, if it smells like a duck and walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. I mean, if you take the city hall out of the city's name, create a 501c3 and transfer ownership of the building to that 501c3, you know there's shenanigans going on there. I'm sorry. But it, once again, if you've got a well, – anyway, if, you, if you've got a blind spot that big, you need to go hang out with Ray Charles and, and uh, Ronnie Millsap because you'd be in mutual <laughs> company. Um, Dr. Wilbolt, good morning, sir. How are you? Uh, good morning to be here, and I'd just like to tip my hat, my, my compliments. I think you're it's, – it's a good noble public service, and this was something that obviously wasn't on my radar until I was in my truck driving over here, but I think uh, – in addition to like learning about Bruce Springsteen, Buffalo Bills, I mean, you, you've done a good uh, a good service, and I, I would imagine a lot of people are some people are probably ner- really nervous right now. I'm probably having a, a bad day, kind of was uh oh we've 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 kicked up a, co- a hornet's nest, and so with the the demise of print media, this is where we this is where we can kind of grease the rails, if you will, and get things and get things moving. A lot of people are talking. Who knows what's going to come of it? But uh, I don't think this is going away. So my compliments. Let, let's let's go down this road. I mean, you're from Buffalo. I am from yeah. the South. <laughs> Um, he's rocking his Tennessee Volunteers yeah, vest on. I got my Gamecock stuff here tonight at Bowling Thompson Bowling Thompson Arena. Bowling. Um, yeah, big one. Uh, the Gamecocks and Volunteers play basketball tonight. Gamecocks, mm-hmm. I think I saw this morning, Rev, they made a technical error in the ranking of the teams. They had South Carolina number 26. But if, if Twitter's not lying, and they never do, then um, <laughs> they've been upgraded to number 25 in the oh. country. Can you confirm that? Because okay. if it is, it'd be a battle of top 25 teams. Tennessee yeah. is a we'll top 10 team. Um, top five? Yeah, top five team. Now, well, let me do I, <laughs> You're right. Um, the, the bills are gone. This is all I got now. So yeah. well, I, I want to stay there for a second with you. I got a theory, right. and, and you may disagree with me. If Andy Reid were coach of the Buffalo Bills, yeah. I think they've got three Super Bowls. You can, you I mean, can, I, I really believe that, Doctor Bolt. You can you can make the argument, and a lot of people are kind of there's rumors, right, that he might be stepping down to retire, and maybe Belichick goes there. But yeah, the Bills just can't quite get over the the hump. Now, now in fairness, though, Reed sort of had that problem in Philadelphia. Uh, they kind of ran him out there, and uh, well, he bumped into Patrick Mahomes. Exactly. When you right, when Patrick Mahomes falls into your lap, a lot of your problems go away. And a lot of people would say that Josh Allen, if he's not as good as Mahomes, there's there's not much of a gap and that the bills there's a lot of weapons that just can't get out just can't quite get over them and a lot of people were saying after the recent defeat bill belichick on the sidelines in a buffalo bills hoodie wouldn't wouldn't look that bad well i mean i right think andy reed and josh allen could make a I dynamic would, duo yeah. so we're talking about southern politics yeah. um i was talking about you being from buffalo <laughs> but in early american history I mean, there was always controversy. There was always shenanigans. There, there was, I mean, it, you, you've <laughs> told the story. It was always like, got me on that one now, but I'm going to yeah. make sure you don't get me on, knew, on this right. next. I mean, it's been a part of the intrigue of American politics. Yeah, but both sides did it, and like we said at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, yeah, you got me. I didn't anticipate you you were going to do it in this one, but uh, I'll get you next time. And there was, there was a tip of the cap. They would bet amongst one another's. 
Uh, and they, they sort of had they had the spread. And so these guys really knew the, the wards, the districts, you know, down to just single digits. And so if something was kind of kind of off, it was like, uh-oh, and so there's something really weird going on or there's some big wave uh, that's going on. And lots of times at the time, the, the newspapers would publish the vote rolls. And so everybody knew who voted. And then there'd be a whole bunch of guys at the end. It would say, gone fishing. And that meant you didn't come out. You didn't like your party's candidate, but you weren't going to vote for the opposition because everyone would know. So you sat that one out. So, yeah, it's dirty dealings, corruption in American politics. It's as old as the republic itself. But has it ever, I mean, in, in modern, I, I'm going to go to Trump for a second because you, um, you, uh, you told me a story during, during the break. And, I mean, I certainly don't want to bring you in harm's way. I don't want to make you a controversial um, figure. But the reason that I think you have accepted the invitation to come on this radio show is you believe we're fair-minded. Absolutely. Uh, we had a debate last week about conspiracy yeah. theories. <laughs> So but that's, that's a good segment. Well, I mean, well, to me, it is. I mean, there's kind of an interesting um, that there's an interesting conversation out there about conspiracy theories becoming more believable because they seem to be coming true at a faster <laughs> yeah. at a faster rate. And and someone criticized you for being an academic and allowing yeah. yourself to be exposed <laughs> to such a nonsensical conversation. I want to make sure that you understand that we're not in the conspiracy theory business. No. We're in the debate and dialogue right. business. And, and and conspiracy theories deserve to be debated and have dialogue. And we're, we're just having a good time, just kind of like bandering back and forth. And, shoot, we had a lot of people calling in. The, 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 the people who are listening are like that stuff. It's fun to just kind of kick the tires on that once in a while. And so, yeah, we're having, having a little fun. doesn't mean we agree, subscribe uh, to all of them. But hey, why not? You know, there are a lot of people who are intrigued, and especially now in this era of cynicism, when trust in our government is at, sadly at an all-time low. Then, right, that of course people are going to be more apt to sort of go down some of these roads, and just because we go down a couple of them doesn't mean we're denying the Apollo moon landings or grassy knolls, anything like that. We're just having some fun. And Bolt, <clears throat> you are, in, in essence, one of the gatekeepers. Uh, one of the great, I mean, I didn't stay at college enough to, to, to know whether this is true or not, but I've heard that one of, one of the great necessities of higher education is critical thinking Absolutely. to, to allow people to express themselves without fear yeah. of uh, being right. ridiculed or being a, given a, you know, a lower grade because they have a certain political yeah. persuasion. I mean, if you, not you personally, but if your profession doesn't encourage and foster these sorts of, uh, vigorous debates, we're going to be less of a country, and we're I going to be so. more right. cynical about what is allowed to be spoken about and what's well, not. What's sort of like the, the, the part, the key part of a higher education in America is this exchange of ideas. And if you close off, if you don't have a dialogue where you have somebody essentially just dictating you to you or telling you this is the way it is, and a lot of people are going to say, well, this, this, this isn't for me. This isn't what I want. So, yes, no, I believe in a healthy, open debate and dialogue, and right now I encourage that. Uh, and all of my classes, and I, I believe most of my colleagues at Francis Marion do as well. And and but Rev, isn't that one of the concerns that you and I have? I mean, you've done this as long as mm-hmm. I have. You sat beside me, and we've watched some of these. We watched Obama get elected. We watched Trump get elected. We watched liberals control Congress. We've seen conservatives control Congress. The one thing that sticks in our craw is the belief that some of the opinions we have aren't being allowed to be heard. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to agree with it. You can say I'm as crazy as the day is long, but you should, you should, I should be allowed to at least express those beliefs in the public square. Well, and you see examples of when these uncertain university campuses, when they invite a known 
conservative speaker. I mean, we've seen right. the reaction. They've sometimes not been allowed to they speak, or there's down. been yeah. protests and sometimes violence and threats. So you, you've got to take that into your thinking to realize that, yeah, this is not about an open dialogue or a conversation in some cases. Right. This is about shutting down someone you don't agree with, not but, even but, allowing them to but, speak. But if every institution that we've historically trusted is less trustworthy, you should begin the process of making yourself better. And I think higher education, I mean, it's not the CIA, it's not the FBI, it's not the DOJ, but it is a place where, where young brains are developed. And, and it's a place where, you know, the, the, the opinions of young adults are given in, in some sort of public debate or public square. And, and I do believe that professors and, and academics of higher learning are very critical in allowing these essential mm-hmm. debates, whether they're conspiracy theories or not. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's vigorous debate, and it's what made America great. And if we right. if, if we stop doing that, Bolt, we're, we're going to have a less trusting public. I think so. No, absolutely right. If somebody knows that i got to be very, very careful what I say, i got to be careful what I write in an essay, there might be retribution, I might get a poor grade from it, then oh, we in higher education have failed those individuals. But do you believe <laughs> that's the case, or you do believe that's a bunch of crazy right-wing talk show hosts creating paranoia in America? Well, from what I sadly believe, I think there are some people who don't who don't leave the politics at the front door. And if they find out that you're a, a MAGA, Trump individual, there there might be. They're gonna your essay, your exam might get uh, scrutinized a little more than maybe somebody else who who drinks the Kool Aid. And that's un- unfair. <laughs> that's and unfortunate. Un- and unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. MFR in Florence. You are on with Doctor <laughs> Bolt. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Uh, can we go back to the, Can we go back to the UN for a minute? And I would propose that we do uh, choose ourselves from that um, institution if for no other reason um, I don't think it's conspiracy theory as much as it is uh, Ken I believe you're a Bible believing individual um, there's a lot of um, just demonic activity that goes on there and I feel allow me to point something out there's a lady named Alice Bailey she's now dead but there uh, she had a publishing company called the lucifer trust uh that was a little bit too bold so they had to change it back to the lucius trust but she actually has her own room in the un they call it the meditation room but this thing actually exists you can go look it up and they dedicated it to her she was um uh, admired by hitler crowley jack carson's uh, l ron hubbard you go down all the the different folks that were into um Let's just call it uh, what it is. I mean, it's the occult. It's what it is. <clears throat> but um, she subscribed to this notion of ascended masters. Um, and there, there's one guy that came later that's almost the John the Baptist of uh, the New Age. His name was Benjamin Krim. And he ran around, and he says that uh, there's this basically – the second coming of Christ, which we would call the Antichrist, because if you ever read her writings, it's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. It says that Lucifer is really good and blah, blah, blah. But the guy's name is Maitreya, or how Krim describes him. And the, this entity has showed up multiple times, and it's been documented, um, and it heals people. Um, but, I mean, it's signs and wonders shown by, you know, a, an entity and I know it's getting out there for a lot of people, but, I mean, if you read your Bible and you believe in it, then you believe that, you know, there is something called the Antichrist that's been running around. 
um, obviously it embodies itself as a much um, more um, metaphysical entity later on as we progress through um, time. But the Spirit's been there um, at least since Jesus was around. I believe it was Peter or Matthew 1 said the, the Spirit is was around. But anyway, point being, can we just get out of the thing? I mean, it's just that nothing good has come out of this, this entity. I mean, I'll just leave it there for you guys. Thank you. Appreciate that. Hold on to that. We're behind a bit. I want to take a break, come back. And I do want to talk about America's association with some of these. Bolt, I said earlier, Trump is a very radical personality with a with a non-radical yeah. agenda. I mean, his agenda is fairly, I mean, it's a deregulating uh, you know, tax decreasing. For, yeah, that's right. Immigration I mean, he, reform. He, right. he would be a business-friendly Republican, and, yeah. and and we've had a million of those. <laughs> Is it time that America begins to consider a, a more radical agenda? That that's I, I think that's an interesting proposal to have a conversation about. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair, Francis Barron, University, devout Tennessee volunteer and Buffalo Bill fan is with us today. I'm hopeful that Bolt wakes up tomorrow morning with a big frown on his face. I'm hoping our beloved Gamecocks go to Thompson Bowling Arena. The the one thing the Gamecocks and volunteers have in common relating to basketball, they built these huge arenas. Yeah. Over there, 18 to 20,000 seats. Huge, man. And the majority is like a NASCAR race. You put a big drape over it. So nobody sees all the uh, all the empty seats in the you ready in the upper bowl of those um humongous facilities <laughs> that were built more for Bruce Springsteen and Madonna and Taylor Swift now than yeah. they were for um for the volunteer basketball. Ta- Taylor or, Swift or, couldn't go into those arenas; those are way too small. Uh, they, yeah. She probably yeah, that charge a thousand dollars a ticket to yeah. cover her fee. Um, but what do you make of Trump radical person? Not such a radical agenda. Were there presidents in early American history that had radical agendas? I mean, we're forming a nation. We're not as entrenched as we are now. Washington is kind of a newbie when it comes to government. What would be some of the radical agendas or platforms that early presidents had? Well, Andrew Jackson, of course, right? Ruffled lots and lots of feathers, just like Trump is a bit uh, of an outsider. Uh, and he said, right, the, the, the grave chain is going to end. You know, we're going to cut off all these fundings. Uh, for internal improvements, these these projects where we don't know where the money is going to. And Jeff, excuse me, Jackson, like Jefferson, was obsessed with paying off the debt. All right, so we're gonna got to cut salaries, we're gonna cut funding, uh, and we're gonna do is we're gonna lower taxes as well. And again, how are we gonna do this? Right, we're gonna curtail federal spending. And so this is the easiest way. And Andrew Jackson, as president, is the only president who can say, "Well, I was in office, there was no federal debt." And this is Jackson's greatest. Uh, accomplishment while he's president of the United States. They make the announcement January 8th, 1835. Uh, no accident. It was the anniversary of Jackson's great victory at the Battle of New Orleans. And so a nice way to kind of commemorate that victory uh, 20 years later, that there was no debt in the country at all. When we get to the Civil War, this is a weird way to ask the question. Was it more radical to be for um, abolishment or was it more radical to be supportive of the continuation of slavery. Yeah. I mean, the nation was divided, right? Oh, oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. No, it's a very, very divisive issue. Lincoln, again, early on in the Civil War maintained, we're fighting this war to preserve the Union. All right, so we're not doing anything about slavery. As the war progresses after a couple of years, as the casualties are mounting, Lincoln, of course, comes to the realization that 
we can't put this back together the way it was before. There has to be some sort of dramatic or radical change, if you will. And Lincoln had been wrestling with this issue probably ever since the first shots were fired at Fort Sumter. And so by the summer of 1862, he has resolved that uh, we're going to do something about slavery. And the original Emancipation Proclamation tells the seceded states, if you come back into the Union by January 1st, 1863, you can keep your slaves. After January 1st, 1863, well, you're coming back into the Union, but you're going to come in without your slaves. And Lincoln followed through with that. And then to make sure, this is why we had the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which solidified it. Lincoln was afraid. I've issued the Emancipation Proclamation. The courts could strike it down, or another president after me could repeal it or rescind it. What was it that Lincoln did? I mean, I know the—I'm asking the question. I know the answer, too. But where— some accuse Lincoln of being a bit tyrannical oh, in, in basically throwing the, you know, well, yeah. I mean, this moment is bigger than the Constitution, and, and a lot of people believe he was in direct violation of the Constitution. Well, a lot of even devout Lincoln scholars would say that Lincoln had to violate the Constitution in order to preserve it. I mean, Lincoln's record on civil liberties isn't the best. Expound upon that. Well, Lincoln found out uh, some of the seceded states or some, the state of Maryland was contemplating secession. And if Maryland seceded, the federal capital would have been surrounded. Uh, Virginia had already seceded, and so Washington, D.C. would be stuck in the middle. And so as Maryland was voting to, uh, going to have a vote to secede, uh, Lincoln conveniently detained uh, some legislatures in Maryland, uh, put them in jail, uh, and then once the vote was taken, released them, did the same thing in Kentucky. Uh, Lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus uh, throughout the country, Explain uh, to people what that is. Essentially, the government can sort of take you, put you in jail, and doesn't have to tell you <laughs> why they're doing it. So one of the fundamental aspects of being in America that, right, you know, you, you can't just be on a whim taken and incarcerated. And then if they are going to, they at least got to let you know why they're holding you with a, right away. Lincoln said, hey, we're not going to worry about that. Congress, to allow Lincoln to save some face, then passed sort of a law which legalized what Lincoln had did a few months earlier. Uh, so just in case somebody was maybe thinking about impeaching the guy, uh, they couldn't do it. But no, again, Lincoln kind of in many ways sort of trampled on the Constitution. He won it in the end, all right? So that's why history gives him a pass. But those who dislike Lincoln then and certain historians, certain scholars now are always quick to point out that his record on civil liberties uh, leaves a lot to be desired. How many of the 13 original colonies seceded? Uh, all the all the southern ones, right? You've got uh, Virginia, both the Carolinas, and Georgia, all right? So I think, I think I got them all right. I so. think that's all. Yeah, all yep. four, four of the thirteen mm-hmm. seceded, and a couple of others were considering right uh, Mar- secession. There was never really any serious talk in Delaware. Slavery was withering away, but no, there was lots and lots of support. And on many a Civil War battlefield, you had rival Maryland regiments, some for the north, some for the south. The same thing with Kentucky and Missouri. These border states where it was. Not just a civil war nation, but also a civil war within the state. Families were bitterly uh, divided. And here's where you hear the, the tear-jerking stories of one brother's fighting for the north and one's fighting for the south. Uh, a lot of those western battles, Shiloh, uh, Atlanta, Vicksburg, again, you had multiple Kentucky regiments, you know, a dozen from the north, a half dozen from the south. The guys who knew uh, one another in the same communities were now fighting uh, against one another oh, but, on a battlefield. How, how many states were there? I mean, that would have been 18... What? What's 20, 20, 20, 22, right? So, 20, 24. So, so four, I was talking about 13 colonies. So there were 22 states 24, yeah. at the time we involved ourselves in a civil war. Mm-hmm. And of those 22 states, 
four. Only four of the original. Uh, officially seceded from yeah. from the union. All right. Uh, imagine South Carolina being one of those one of those four. <laughs> what, what what a badge of honor. The, the, the first two. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna imagine that. <laughs> if it ain't Texas, it's us. Is what we've always kind of um kind of said. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Doctor Will Bolt, history chair, Francis Marion University. We'll take a break. We'll come back with one more segment. 843-661-0937. February 20th is the Republican primary uh, for president of the United States. We don't have any polling that doesn't include Ron DeSantis. I talked no. to Robert a little bit yesterday, and Robert said that he may not do anything this week, but rather wait until next as we get closer to uh, the situation in South Carolina. Now, now, Robert said something interesting to me, and I want to give him all the credit of the world. I like to believe I listen to these things a little bit different than most people, but I didn't pick up on this. Dr. Bolt, Robert said, our, our guru said that, um, that Nikki said she doesn't have to win South Carolina to continue. Okay. Um, but she's got to do better than she did in New Hampshire and New Hampshire. She got about 42 to 3% of the vote. So Robert's hearing her say, I got to do better than 42 or three in South Carolina or I'm not a viable candidate, newsflash, I don't think she will. But what do you make of Trump's continued dominance That's, in the Republican primary? That just a, a bulldozer, almost like it's it's inevitable. And I guess they're probably just hanging around, just hoping in case one of these court cases goes sideways. Here I am. I mean, I, I guess if, if, if you've got the money, you don't want to bleed the donors dry, you just kind of keep going and hoping. It's probably, everybody's ever run a campaign sort of based on that, that Something might happen to the, I mean, imagine to the front that, I'm the understudy, but. Yeah, you, you, your strategy is the guy that's beating my brains out is going to be in a courtroom all <laughs> summer. And one of these things, as Bolt said, may go sideways. You never, you never know, right? It's just he may just say the wrong thing at the wrong time, and some judge might order him in contempt, and they, which would probably benefit him politically <laughs> in the long run. But now you, you figure the, the law of large numbers and averages, maybe something is, is going to stick. He's just going to. The wrong judge, the wrong charge at the wrong time. Something's just gonna, for the libs, the the fate, the stars are just gonna align, and they're gonna finally get themselves in the get them in that orange jumpsuit and get them get them behind bars and say, all right, we can just disqualify you. Maybe the Supreme Court intervenes and surprises us. We'd probably think that they would say no, but maybe they find a way uh, to exclude him in a way that's not gonna lead to peasants with pitchforks. God help them if they if they decide to take that case and they can't find a way. To punt, so yeah, and maybe Governor Haley's just lowering expectations, saying, "All right, I got to get forty-two, forty-three, and so that way, you know, she gets forty-four. It's like I could spin it as a win, but if you're, but what if you get forty? What if you get thirty-nine? <laughs> yeah, what's well, we we talked about Desantis needing an exit ramp, and well, he just he just kind of created one all of a sudden on a Sunday morning. Yeah, at one point, do you say enough is enough? But if you believe, or if you got people telling you you're a viable candidate. Uh, and there is this still this belief that he could wind up unable to run. Then if that happens, then I guess you say, well, I got the next number of delegates. I, I lost in every state, but here I am. I, I guess that's, I guess that's, that's reason enough to just kind of, kind of keep moving forward at this point. It's no campaign has ever been run on grounds like that before. But again, with Trump, we're just continuing to, to, to break them, to break the mold. I think I have a good understanding of Southern workers and their affinity for Trump. You're from Buffalo. 
No, you've led me yeah. to believe that. I mean, that's kind of um. I mean, that's Russ Bell. That that's a working personified. class. No doubt about I mean, the Buffalo Bills as they go, so goes yeah. <laughs> the city of Buffalo. I mean, they pride themselves in that kind of um. I don't yeah. know that 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 psyche, that demeanor, that well, it's, that, it's right. We we've been kind of kicked around. And people, when you think of Buffalo, what do you think of? You think of well, our, our main export is crippling depression. Uh, but you know, we just it, it, nobody nobody retires to Buffalo. I mean, it's it's the and, weather and, and Trump's message resonates in Buffalo. Hey, you've got oh. all these miles upon miles of dilapidated, closed down steel mills that are just rusting, withering away. They're just a terrible, terrible eye. So you can't knock them down and bulldoze them because of all the EPA regulations. You know, it would cost you billions of dollars. Just to pave it and to do to try and redevelop it, it's it's too expensive. And it's it's just a grim reminder of what what Buffalo once was in the 1950s. Buffalo was the ninth largest city in the country, not even in the in the top 50 anymore. And so, right, someone like Trump comes around and says, "Hey, we need to renegotiate some of these trade deals. We need to end these onerous regulations that the government has put." Lots of people in Buffalo say, "Well, where were you 40, 50 years ago? That would have helped." But better late. Than never, right? Maybe we can have a better life for our kids and our grandkids. And so the other guys, Biden, the Democrats, it's just more of the same. Here's somebody who's outside of the box. And again, we're sort of hinting at some of the maybe not so radical things he's proposing. But again, this is something, this is a breath of fresh air. And people who are just sick and tired of being sort of talked down to, people talking through them. Uh, here is Trump, who's the one guy. And Trump is a master of a lot of these kitchen table issues. Uh, here's a guy from a wealthy Manhattan real estate broker. But again, no, can talk to you about a lot of these things which the common people are feeling. And again, it, it resonates with voters. He's a fascinating guy to study and to talk about. So do you believe that the Buffalo voter is the Michigan voter? I mean, we were talking during the break. Trump's at about 65 yeah. percent in Michigan. He said actually 62 percent with DeSantis at 14 percent. He may be closer to 70 percent. <laughs> In Michigan, in the Republican a primary. Republican, yes. He, Trump does well in western New York. Can't quite crack the 50%. And again, old habits die hard. Buffalo is very, very strong, strong union presence. Uh, not so much the industrial workers, but the teachers, nursing, clerical. Uh, unions still matter a lot. And, you know, the union bosses maybe will publicly tell them, you know, hey, you're supposed to vote for Biden, wink, wink. Uh, but, you know, vote your conscience, if you will. So, yeah, and if, if he were able to sort of carry Western New York, that would be a very, very strong sign uh, that, again, this is, there's a, a reordering in American politics. When's the last time Erie County went Republican? Was uh, it right, would it have been uh, Reagan? I was going to probably Reagan in 84 with just about everybody in the country. Now, Buffalo, New York, for a while had uh, a Republican representative. Jack Quinn was our representative. He was a, a labor Republican, one of the few guys who cared about organized labor, and that's what allowed him. Uh, he was an Irishman. Uh, northern politics, ethnicity matters. So an Irishman, an Italian man, people will sort of cross over and forget about their party allegiances. It's like, oh, it's one of my own. Uh, I'm a Republican, but there's an Irish Democrat. Or I'm a Democrat, but there's a, a Republican Italian running. I'm going to support that individual. So things like that in northern politics still matter a lot. So so the, the, the Erie County New York voter would be similar to the South Carolina voter? I mean, and I'm talking about, I mean, I understand. On economic issues. Well, I mean, and there, that's where yeah. I was headed. Less evangelical. Right. And less, less, well, you ready? Less Jesus-y right. than, than down south. And the the abortion issue, they're, they're Catholics. The Catholic Church, of course, is a doesn't like abortion, but a lot of the, the Catholics in Buffalo say this is a woman's right to choose. And so this would maybe be the big, big difference. This would be the breaking point for a, a Trump voter in South Carolina and a Trump voter in western New York. Yes.
That, that's interesting. So Reagan probably carried Erie County maybe 80 and 84. Almost almost certainly in 84, yeah, maybe not. And he'd have to go back and check. But, again, <laughs> Reagan carried all but six states uh, in 80, just a huge, uh, huge beatdown for Jimmy Carter. And then all but one in yeah. In, uh, in 84, I mean, if, Minnesota. You know, if I were Trump talking about Haley, I, my, my, my bumper sticker would be, I mean, at least Mondale won his home state. You know, <laughs> how do you consider yourself a viable candidate? Uh, Dr. Bolt, thank yeah. you. Hey, thanks, Dutton. Appreciate and, it. And, and watch the basketball game. What time, is it, what time is it starting out? It's 7 o'clock in Thompson Bowl. So that game's got some juice, so ah, it should be a good game. That's a road. Uh, that may be a— 6.30 uh, is the time. 6.30? That yeah, may be Dave. a bit much for our Gamecocks right now. Tennessee's established. Yeah, I, mean, they they, I mean, they're a contender. I mean, they're one of the five or ten yeah, best teams in America. Um, Big game for South Carolina, though. We're, well, not, we're not going to sleep on them. It, it, well, I mean, you should. I mean, the Gamecocks yeah. have kind yeah, of risen to the occasion at about every time. They're, they're given an opportunity. I mean, the Kentucky win sounds bigger. Kentucky at home is not as big a win as at Tennessee. Right. I mean, they, and, and I'm talking about net Still, rankings. That was a beatdown of, of Kentucky. There yeah. was no doubt. Well, when you play that. a blue blood, you better beat yep. them down because if you leave it to the zebras, <laughs> Clemson found out the hard way. Those blue bloods always <laughs> get the call to the end. Too soon. Yeah, thank you both. Have a good week, guys. We'll take a break. We'll be back in a few minutes. 843-661-0937, concluding our third hour on this Tuesday morning. I do think it's pretty bizarre that Trump is so far ahead and if you really, and I don't know how to do this. I mean, I've got this brainstorm about how many working class workers or percentage of working class workers in state X. And, and if you could extrapolate that number to a percentage of support Trump has in that state, I just think that's where we are. I mean, I think we're as much as Drew McKissick doesn't like this. And if I were in his shoes, I wouldn't like this either. I think the Republican party today finds itself in an asymmetric relationship, donor uh, to voter. And I'm talking about the rank-and-file voter, and you can take the donor's money, and you can pay consultants, but God loved common people because he made a bunch of us. I mean, a <laughs> bunch of us. And I mean, the billionaire has the ability to give a lot of money and move the meter that way, but when he goes to the ballot box, in most states, it only counts uh, one time, just as the you know, the, the, the bottom of the totem pole worker in, uh, in Main Street, USA. and well, I That's the only reason Trump has the power and puts the fear into these people like he does, because he has regular people but behind what, him. But what we've got to do, and you and I have discussed this, we've got to monetize the movement. You can't trust the gurus. And by that, I mean the Tea Party was hijacked. I mean, you know, some some... Some profiteers figured out a yeah, way to— Their motivations aren't the same. Well, I mean, of course they aren't, but there's always the money. And if we could be genuinely and sincerely committed to the movement, and nobody care who gets the credit, nobody who cares who gets the most money, and if every—I think we said the other week, if half of the Trump voters gave, you know, $5 a month, I mean, that, that creates the one of the largest political action committees in the world. A couple billion bucks Yeah, a year, and I mean, right? you become such a dominant force, but right now there's this conflict. And Nikki Haley is the darling of the donors. Trump is obviously the darling of the voters. And the donors don't really like the voters. Uh, the voters probably don't really like the donors. Um, it's, it's just such an interesting phenomenon that the GOP finds itself in. And the only way to, I think, sustain America first and win elections overwhelmingly is to find some sort of funding mechanism. 
but because the the donors just don't want politics to do what the voters want politics to do restore fairness in the free market uh what is the cost of inequality what's the transfer of value uh we talked a lot about that i mean th- those are i mean th- those are really academic conversations to have uh the transfer of value you know wh- what does that mean uh, we tried to talk a little bit about this morning when you wonder why the Koch brothers are so opposed to Trump, Trump is a closed-border Republican. I mean, he's a deregulated, but what Republican's not? He, he's a low-tax Republican. What Republican is not? I mean, you know, I don't think there's a single Republican in America today that has a plan to deal with the debt. I mean, I don't. I think the debt's so large, they kind of blow past that. You know, for a moment, we all turn into modern monetary theorists or Keynesian economists. Now, we don't like to admit that, but that's... I mean, nobody has a good answer when it comes to the debt, but some of the other principled, uh, yeah, you know, principled ingredients of conservatism, um, and Trump's for the majority of that. Take a break. Back in a few. Health insurance is complicated, right? Everyone's situation is different, right? There are multiple options to choose from. Very few are affordable, especially in the ACA plans. The American uh, what am I trying to say? The American Care Act. Now, what was it called? The American the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act. The not so affordable <laughs> right. Care Act is it's really what it uh, what it has been. Christian Levis at Real Choice Healthcare has been helping people get the right coverage at the best rate for years and years and years. If you're under the age of sixty five, if you're reasonably healthy, you owe it to yourself to call Christian or go to the website. And I'm gonna give you the number and the uh, and the website. 839-888-3970. 839-888-3970. The website is realchoicehealthcare.com. Realchoicehealthcare.com. Under the age of 65, reasonably healthy, interested in saving some money, um, get with Christian via phone or over the internet on the uh, on the website 843 another number 6610937 someone's there let's go to the phone david in the pd hi you're on hey man donald trump would would uh trademark what what do you say less jesusy yeah less G- le- 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 less jesusy um yeah i'll give an example to me now i don't know that i've got the data to prove this david We've had this yeah. unbelievable growth along the coast of South Carolina. When I ran for lieutenant governor, it was all about Greenville and the surrounding areas. I mean, it was a, a very conservative, evangelical-centric vote, and you had to – I mean, you couldn't lose there and win the Republican nomination. Um, it's different now. That's 14 years later. I ran in 2010. Cahaley will tell you in a minute now it's about the upstate in Horry County. And Horry County is less evangelical. It's trans, you know, it's people that don't, didn't grow up here, didn't go to the First Baptist Church in Pamplico, aren't quite as Jesus-y as those in the, uh, in the upstate. I don't mean it to be an insult by any stretch. It's just kind of a different way of being brought up. Hey, it's the truth, brother, because I spend a lot of my time uh, talking to people from up there. But you were talking about the orange jumpsuit in the litigation industry. Did you see Alec Murdoch yesterday? Um, that's been on the news today. I saw uh, a little bit of that. I mean, I saw where Toll declined him a new trial. Well, 
My thing is that, but I, I grew up ten miles from where he uh, he had his litigation industry. Man, I go back to the days. Uh, God, I'm getting old. 1984. I'm thinking uh, that was a George Orwell. That's when I graduated from high school, and I remember a guy came up to me and my buddy. He says we were going to University of South Carolina. Says, you ever consider being a lawyer? And I said, a lawyer? Okay. Uh, to me, that was a calling. And uh, my best friend, his daddy actually had a law degree, and uh, he was a farmer. In other words, there was more money in farming than being a lawyer back in the days. Uh, and then, too, uh, it was like stereo. We said, there's too many lawyers. This was back in 1984. So now I guess I sound like a dummy right now saying that. But back in the day, we thought of it as too many lawyers. But what do lawyers do? I guess they go into legislation and they create laws that create more lawyers. So, and if you look at what Murdoch did down there in Hampton, it's kind of sad in a way. And I, I remember you, you've heard of David Allen Coe. He had a song, man. He said he went to pick up his mama in a pickup truck, and they got ran over. And she got ran over by a train. Well, guess what? Litigation industry, if you had a train incident, where did it go? It went to Hampton, South Carolina. So when I watch this kind of stuff, I say, wow, how, how does that happen? How does this all go funneled to these different places? And I saw this thing yesterday, and I saw who was representing these people on Stan and Gene Toll and uh, my man Harpootley and a Griffin. And uh, I'll leave you this, man. <laughs> these Harpootley and a Griffin, how are they making their money? They're, they're showing up for all these things, but, I mean, how does Alec? Pay him and this and that, because he's he's in he's in prison, just like the mama in that song. But anyway, y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Let Let's argue, Josh, that every job in America is in the starting blocks. I mean, we're we're going to have a race around. I mean, we're going to run a four forty relay, and everybody, every employee in America is in the starting blocks at the same time. Radio show producers, radio show hosts. Programming directors, welders, pipe fitters, lobbyists, consultants, lawyers, ah, doctors, business owners. We're all in these in these starting blocks together, and we're chasing our share of the GDP. And the gun goes off, and we all take off to try and run around the track, and about six or eight of these people run toward the politics. I mean, they run toward the government. And you and I, I mean, you, you're a radio show producer. I'm a radio show host and uh, and somewhat of an entrepreneur. I mean, I, you know, develop properties and whatnot and formerly in manufacturing. I mean, in other words, I've had my hand in some different sorts of things. You're not old enough to have made uh, the mistakes that I made by believing that you can be a jack of all trades. Um, but, but we're wondering, well, why aren't those people in finance running as fast as I am? Why aren't those people in legal running as fast as I am? I mean, they, they made a stop off at the state house or they made a stop off at the Capitol or they made a stop off on K street. And the next thing, you know, you get around the track and they say, well, you didn't really win the race. I mean, you don't get as much money as they get or they get, or they get because they, I mean, they, they paid their respects to government. 
but they did what they are supposed to do. Um, finance in particular, the financialization of our economy is where the majority, the lion's share of wealth has been created in the financial sector in our economy. There's a big belief in America today that some of the best and brightest are not going in engineering. They're not going to some of the um, hard sciences because finance pays so much better. I want to get to Wall Street. I mean, I want to get an MBA from Duke. I want to get an MBA from Wharton. I want to get an MBA from Darden so I can go to MBA from Harvard. I mean, that's my ticket. You know what I mean? Um, that gets me to Wall Street. That gets me in s- some of these high-flying finance instruments and banking and, and whatnot. And you, you begin to debate, okay, if, 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 if an engineer builds a bridge across a, a river and makes X, but the guy financing the bridge makes more than the engineer, then, then what's right about that economy? See, we have a, a discombobulated economy today. I mean, if we do. The guy that engineers the bridge that, that spans across the river makes less normally than the guy that figures out a way to finance the bridge. And, I mean, it, something tells me that the person doing the figure in the hard science to build a bridge, this much concrete, this much iron, this many columns, this big a span, I mean, that's the guy that should be hitting the home run. He designed, he engineered. I mean, he, he brought more to the table. But all of a sudden, you got to get that bridge financed, right? I mean, I got buddies on Wall Street. They'll finance this bridge at 6%. I mean, my fee is X. And the engineer goes, well, I built the damn bridge, and my fee's not that much. It, I'll give you an interesting number. Um, I read this a couple of weeks back about NFL football. I'll ask Rev and Josh, in a fair economy, now the fair comes in October. I mean, I know that. If you're waiting on fair, you'll wait your life away. But in the abstract, in theory, as we hypothesize, let's let's kind of close our eyes and meditate for a second and think about fairness in the economy. What if the economy were God ordained? God is flawless, right? I mean, God is sovereign. God, God is perfect. God is just. So God is in charge of the economy. Now I think that, but God allows man to goof it up. Um, but but God says, okay, man, you've goofed it up enough. I'm taking over the economy. Here's a question I want you to ask yourself because I read this in a um, in a sports article a couple of weeks back. The amount of money NFL players make are somewhat of derivative on how much interest the American public have. In other words, ad revenue and TV rights and you know, stadium tickets and all this money that the NFL creates allows the owners to disperse X number of dollars to the tight end, the wide receiver, the quarterback. Some get more. I mean, they're more valuable. Some get less. They're less valuable. But in a God-ordained economy where justice prevails, where perfect is in um, is possible, what percentage of American families are able to afford season tickets to let's say the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, in, in a perfect economy. And, and what I'm saying is, what would a ticket be if we if 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 NFL football players' average salary was half what it is today, what would a ticket cost? I mean, it'd be cheaper, right? I mean it'd be less expensive. Mm-hmm. So let's say in a perfect economy, in, in, in a most fair economy, in a God, I mean God, God is the true arbiter of fairness. And God is in control of the economy. What percentage of American families could justly afford season tickets to the Dallas Cowboys? I mean, I can tell you what the number is now. And they've used some of these correlations. Uh, the mortgage can't exceed but a percentage of your income. 
the car payment can't exceed but a percentage of your income. Um, I mean, uh, football tickets would be extracurricular. I mean, that would be a necessity. You that's kind of in the fun and games department. But but using that, you know, the first the first piece of your pay goes to pay your mortgage. The second goes to pay your car payment. The third goes to put up a little money for maybe a kid's higher education so you don't go and hawk so much when he gets a degree in philosophy or Greek literature and ends up a welder at Nucor um, because he'd make a lot more money being a welder at Nucor than he can reciting Shakespeare. But but we're talking about a God-created economy, not Wall Street, not corporate America, not, not you know, um, the, the poor people that get on Josh's nerves so bad. We're talking about a, a perfect economy. What percentage of households in America should be able to afford, let's say, a household of four, four-season tickets, see the uh, Dallas Cowboys season tickets? Hmm. Now, see, when I look at that question, I'm like, well, I would want everybody that would want to be able to afford. Okay, I'll give you the number now. Okay. You ready? 2%. 2%. See, 98% of American families can't afford to watch their sports heroes play football wow. on a Sunday. But but if you if the TV rights were half, if the salaries were half, yep. I mean, all of a sudden that number turns into obviously a higher number. But what is, I mean, what, what if Reb believes the economy is working for everybody, what is that number? See, I would think 50%. Okay, 35 Okay. I mean, 35. I mean, they, they've done the math. Now, now, once again, this is the most hypothetical exercise imaginable. Right. I don't have any idea what the right answer is, nor does the person who did the um, the survey. But they basically tried to, you know, adjust for w- what the mortgage is, what the car payment is, what the average American family makes, uh, what you can speed on, spend on vacations and whatnot. And it was about 35. In a perfect economy, about 35% of American families would be able to afford Four-season tickets to see the Dallas Cowboys. It was an NFL game. They didn't necessarily say the Cowboys. Um, but only less than 3% can afford to buy tickets to the Cowboys. I mean, mm. we, we've got this top-down economy. I mean, we've got this economy. And, and I know we talk about the cost of inequality and income inequality. And um, I mean, it, some of the issues Trump is gaining the support of because of in other words, a lot of people are voting for Trump because they believe they're getting less than a fair shake. I mean, is that agreeable? I mean, do we three agree in that? The, yep. the, the majority of his most passionate supporters are working men and women who don't know who to be mad at. They just know that life's tough right now, man. I mean, they just know that the amount of money they make and, and, and what they're on the hook for makes it real hard. I mean, it does. It makes it real hard. We did the math yesterday. Um, I mean, nobody understands what this means. The CPI measurement via the Fed is 313.216. Never been higher. When you when you look at, okay, what does that number mean in my world? It means that living your life in the way you lived it pre-COVID is costing you about $219.88 per week more. Per week more. That is staggering. I mean, yesterday when I said that, Josh, you nodded like, yeah, that's right. I mean, you're you're a young guy starting out. I mean, you, you probably don't have a lot of money in savings or a lot of money invested in the market. I mean, you're probably doing the best you can to keep your head above water right now. I mean, I know I got kids. I mean, I know exactly what what you're dealing with. Um, I, I'll share this story real quick, and then we'll take a break. Um, I have counseled uh, my son. When, when, when I take a break, we'll wait a few minutes because we got a nine thirty Fox guest. Um, when I built truck beds and I got married, didn't have any money. My dad didn't pay me much money. He wanted me to earn my keep. Um, 
It was his business, and he made that clear. Uh, but I remember we would what we call slide axles. We would take the axles uh, loose from the truck. We'd slide them shorter, and we'd get there the next morning. The truck would be ready for a bed. You know, we could put the bed on that day. And my dad would pay us a little extra money, um, and it would be 100 bucks. I mean, my share would be 100 bucks. We could F at 5. We'd slide the axle. We'd get off at 9, 4 hours. That's $25 an hour. But that's good money back in the 80s. You know, late 80s, early 90s. That's pretty good money, $25 an hour. So I'd make 100 bucks in four hours. We'd go to Greenwood Baseball to play with my kids, and then we'd go to a Mexican restaurant or Golden Corral or somewhere like that afterwards, and that $100 was good for three meals. I mean, I could feed my family three times on that 100 bucks. I mean, I know that's siloing, and that's a weird way you do it. I mean, that, that lifestyle is toast today. I mean, that $100 probably gets me one meal. I mean, you got two adults, two kids at a buffet. I mean, I, I'll, I'll bet you it's, I mean, the revenue, is it 70 bucks? Is it Probably. 75 bucks? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I bet it's somewhere thereabout. Uh, a little tip here for the uh, for the wait staff, and you're done. I mean, it's time to slide another another axle. That's the real world. And And when you start talking about the Trump support, we'd like to believe that there's such ignorance here. No, I mean, it, it, there's great philosophy here. It's just that we don't talk about it in cost of inequality, transfer of value, um, what percentage of American families should be able to go watch their favorite NFL team play their home games as season ticket holders. The economy has gotten so unaffordable to the average American, and they resent that. Now, now once again, I don't know that the average American, no, I do know, that if you started talking about cost of inequality, they'd look at you funny. If you talked about, you know, transfer of value, they'd look at you funny. But the America First movement, I would argue, is the most interesting and intellectually stimulating movement in America today because immigration has affected the value of your work. There's been a transfer of value. If Rev is a working man, and by that I mean Rev changes tires on tractors all day, and all of a sudden, there are a million more people in the country that are willing to do that work for a lesser price than Rev. Rev has, uh, w- without knowing and unwillingly, transferred a certain percentage of value of his work to someone who has no business here. And that's, I mean, that, that's very intellectual as far as I'm concerned. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 4-3-6-6-1-0-9-3-7, last half hour. Ah, last half hour of this Tuesday <laughs> morning edition. I want to really dig into the transfer of value. I mean, that's such an interesting, and I was reading, and, and I know America First comes off as less than intellectual, but if you really start reading about open borders and the Coke industries and how labor-intensive and the support they have of Nikki Haley, and Nikki's not quite as adamant about closed borders, and I mean, there's a very fair debate to be had there, but the transfer of value is kind of the academic part of this, the intellectual part of this that very few people talk about because Trump's not an intellectually stimulating candidate. I mean, he's a wrecking ball, and um, and wrecking balls tend to be wrecking balls and not quite as intellectually um, stimulating. But I do believe there's some that there's some serious thought to the America First movement. And if it is to sustain itself and become the dominant movement within the, the grand old party, there'll have to be more thinking 
Is that fair? Fair I enough. Think it is um, very fair. Well, I mean, I, you, you agree with me just because you agree with me, and, mm-hmm. and I'll leave you alone if you do that. <laughs> hey, talking about Trump, no. in elections, uh, or excuse me, in Illinois, the election officials are weighing recommendations about whether or not to leave Trump's um, intellectually stimulating name from its March <laughs> primary. Fox News Radio's Jeff Manasso is in Chicago. Jeff, what's the story there? Hey, my friend, good morning. Yeah, so the Illinois State Board of Elections is weighing whether or not to remove former President Donald Trump's name from the state's 2024 ballot. Uh, The board is scheduled to consider that today. Uh, uh, You know, so there were brief arguments last week uh, in which there was a hearing. Trump's attorneys were there. uh, Others were there. The plaintiffs, five voters, apparently. Uh, who are backed by people uh, back east uh, and and their attorneys, uh, in, in which there were brief arguments. Uh, a, a hearing officer for the Illinois board is uh, a retired judge from Kankakee. Uh, he he ruled that the issue should be left up to the courts, not elections officials, to decide Trump's eligibility because of the complicated constitutional issues involved. Uh, though this retired judge, uh, in his opinion, uh, per his 21-page recommendation, he, he believed that the former president did engage in an insurrection, uh, even though the former president has never been charged or convicted of that. Um, these are similar efforts to thwart Donald Trump's presidential bid that are playing out in other Democrat-controlled states in, in which the former president has called uh, these efforts election interference. Uh, the question is, for Illinois, is why'd you wait so long? I mean, the primary's coming up here in a couple of weeks. Um, and, and, and so you know, you got Super Tuesday coming up. Um, Illinois' election board is evenly split uh, between Democrats and Republicans. And, of course, this also comes a little more than a, a week before the U.S. Supreme Court uh, is starting to hear arguments in that case in Colorado. So um, could be a moot point. All this could be a moot point uh, once the U.S. Supreme Court decides uh, one way or, or another. Jeff, there's a lot of, 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 of scuttlebutt, and that's all it is. And I traffic in scuttlebutt. You don't. You're a journalist. I'm not. But but back east, I mean, when you said back east, I mean, there, there's a lot of people in that, that I speak with, that I communicate with, that I interact with, that believe there there's kind of a power center in America, and the power center find Trump unacceptable. Therefore, they're going to uh, marginalize everything about the Trump. The Trump. When, when, when you say back east, I mean, what are you referring to? Yeah, I'm talking about I'm talking about uh, liberal groups that that you know the, that are funded for specific reasons like this uh, and to 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 go after the president um, uh, to make his life a living hell. Uh, if you look at the case in New York City uh, with Eugene Carroll, that was funded almost exclusively by by people who hate the former president. And, and, and I, I don't use that word lightly, hate, but it's, it's just the way it is. Nothing is normal anymore. And, and so we shall see what happens uh, with this. Uh, again, the board is split evenly uh, in, in Illinois, but ultimately in terms of this, it's going to be, you know, it, it's, it's going to be uh, um, uh, up, to the, up to the U.S. Supreme Court to decide, but it's just a constant barrage of negativity and negative headlines as we move forward in this primary process in which 
the former president is dominating and 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 expected to 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 win the nomination uh, on his own without the RNC coming in to say, hey, look, you know, we want to give this to you because it, you know you're, you're you, you appear to be the guy. He wants to do it the old-fashioned way, and um, you know, some people love this guy, some people don't. But you know, I think most people see the nothing is normal anymore, and 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 you know, sit back and, and go, okay, what's happening? What's happening to us? And um. Yeah. We'll explain. Jeff, thank you for your time, my man. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you. You know, and, and I'll say this. I mean, you, you hear Jeff as carefully as he can be uh, as a journalist and working for Fox News, the parent company, got to be careful there. I mean, to me, the most un-American movement in America today is the Never Trumpers. I mean, you're unpatriotic. You're insincere. You're consumed by a vitriol you have for a fellow human being that I find unhealthy and disgusting. Uh, it, it, it's, you know, there, there's an old adage in politics. You accuse people of what you're doing. So when the never Trumpers use the argument of it's cult like it's because you're in a cult. I mean, you, it, it's, there's an old saying also, it's easier to trick someone to convince them they've been tricked. Certain portions of our population have been convinced, tricked, I would argue, to hate Donald Trump, to believe he's genuinely a threat to democracy. Um, you know, the, the, the liberal voices say that. Um, the, the, the liberal elites, the, the media, the academia in general. I'm not talking about every member of academia. I'm not talking about every member of the media. But in general, those are the voices that oppose Donald Trump in a way that I find not just unhealthy, but un-American. Yeah, and it's different than, you know, a political disagreement. I mean, we all have political candidates, elected officials that we disagree with, and in some cases don't like. I mean, there's I could name a few, you know, how I, I feel that way. But this is next level, I think, what you're describing. And, and we, we kind of, you know, obviously name for it is Trump derangement syndrome, right? But that it's just so many steps beyond. And it's... It's not only the people that are that typically vote in this case Democrat that will dislike him and and work against him in any way, shape, or form, but next level is the Republicans that are so against him and work against him. You know, and they, yeah, and and but I tweeted yesterday. Remember that time, Josh, that we were all warned not to elect a political novice because if you do. Hamas will kill Jewish children and American soldiers will get killed on the Jordanian or, you know, uh, Syrian border by an Iran proxy. I mean, remember when we were told this is big boy stuff. I mean, this is the adult section. This is not for, for the, for, for the, for the newbie. This is not for the political novice, especially, you know, an orange man. I mean, that this is serious business and you've got to have very serious people doing this. And if you're not careful, with democracy, you'll lose it. And crazy things like Hamas, you know, committing genocide in Israel will happen. Um, and, you know, three American soldiers, all from Georgia, will be killed by a drone attack sponsored by Iran on the Jordanian-Iranian border. Um, you know, that, that we will have a mass invasion of our nation on the southern border. I mean, that's why you elect adults. Mm -hmm. That's why you put serious people in, in serious positions. We might mess up a withdrawal from, yeah, say, I mean, Afghanistan. The, is, I mean, the, the most dangerous people in America today are those who 100% oppose Donald Trump. 
but they're not interested in democracy. They're not interested in the preservation of government. They are sick. I mean, they're genuinely, there's some sort of affliction that has happened to these people. And I know some, and we can carry on very cordial conversations about Gamecocks and volunteers and, and Tigers and Boy Scouts and, you know, should we, should we buy a new golf cart or not? You know, can you help me fix my truck? I mean, the, the, the majority of our lives are very integrated and it's reasonable and normal. And all of a sudden, if you start talking about Trump, it's, I mean, it's as if they turn into something else and they, they lose comprehension of reality. And I, I can't understand that. I mean, I, I remember, I guess the closest I could be uh, to becoming obsessed is the the losing streak against Clemson in football. I mean, it, it irks me to no end. It grates me. It drives me nuts. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't lead me down the road of being deranged. I mean, I always kind of think about this football, dude. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the fun and games department. I mean, it sucks to lose to Clemson six years in a row. I would imagine Clemson fans felt the same way, probably more so, losing to the Gamecocks five years. This this isn't supposed to be happening. This never happens. What in the world's going on here? But but you kind of look in the mirror and say, I mean, in, in, in the grand scheme of things, it's football. I think the, the never-Trumper is not just dangerous to America. They're dangerous in a weird way to themselves because they refuse to accept reality. I mean, when you, when you put Trump's challenges, and I'm talking about legal challenges, and you lay them out in an understandable and, and, and reasonable fashion, any normal person would say, well, it's obvious what's happening there. I mean, they don't want the guy to be president. I mean, this lady said nothing about it for 25 years, and then all of a sudden it's sexual harassment, the judge and jury, and, you know, Fonnie Willis, and I mean, she runs saying, I'm going after Trump, Letitia James, I'm running going after Trump's brag. I'm running, going after Trump. So if you, if you had kind of a, um, you know, a, a kind of a master theater class and here's the Letitia James, uh, department and here's the Fonnie Willis department and here's the, uh, the uh, Alvin Bragg department and here's the DOJ department, here's the FBI department. I mean, any reasonable person would go to that class for three or four weeks and say, well, then anybody can see what happened there. Well, that, they had men with guns outside of his private residence because he mishandled classified information. And they'll readily admit that the majority of presidents have mishandled classified. I mean, who can't see what's happening there? The question that I'm concerned with, and I don't know the answer to this because I don't have the affliction. Do you know it, but you're so far down this road, it's embarrassing to turn around? You see where I'm headed? I mean, have, have, has it been revealed to you yet? that this is a politicized witch hunt. But you bought in hook, line, and sinker to begin with because somebody convinced you that Trump is that bad, that dangerous, that menacing, that much of a threat to democracy that you just, I mean, you had to be a part of that. You became a part of that. You became obsessed by being a part of that. And about halfway down the road, you kind of scratch your head and say, that's time to look like I want uh, something that smell right here. Do you have the capacity to say something that smell right here. I don't think you do. I mean, I, I think there's some sort of, a, I don't know. I don't want to say a screw loose because I can't psychoanalyze somebody from afar, but I know the people that I associate with, we can have very decent and, 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 and practical conversations about what makes the world go around. But once you go to Trump, I mean, it, it's just like, there's this, wow, really? Take a break, back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. The reason you know it's irrational is I can say something 
about Trump's border policy. And you can disagree. I mean, you can have a different opinion. Certainly entitled to have a different opinion. We can debate what immigration policy should be in America. And when George W. Bush was president, there was a policy. There was another side that disagreed with that policy. And there was debate. And somebody had a point. Somebody had another point. Today, with a never-Trumper, I'll give you an example. If I tweet that I support Trump's border policy It's inevitable somebody's going to send a tweet back. You're talking about that grifting, philandering, you know, no-count, bankrupt, tax-dodging. I'm like, dude, really? 91-time indicted. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, the 91-time indicted, uh, you know, uh, it's just crazy that he's got to be that to them. And to me, that's that's cult-like. I want to talk border. I want to talk taxes. You want to talk about him being a grifter and a philanderer and— you know, 91 times indicted. Uh, it, it's as if we, I'm not talking about anything that he may stand for. I'm talking about what I've been told that he is. And and whether he is or not doesn't matter anymore. I've been told that he's that. And I bought that narrative. And there's no way I can change my mind. I am so married to the concept. But I'm so fully bought in to Trump is bad that no revelation, nothing could happen that would ever change my mind and if I get half a chance, instead of debating border policy, instead of debating uh, trade, instead of debating China, I'm going to use that cannon called 91 time indicted, philandering, tax dodging. Uh, you see where I'm headed? That's that's cult-like to me. Let's go to the phone. Frank in Pamplico. Hey, Frank, you're on. Hey, good morning, guys. Yeah, Ken, uh, the left is succeeding in making the whole – election about trump when they should we should be focused on with the state of affairs in the country on i gotta keep our eyes on the prize and getting our country back and we need to look past all these idiosyncrasies and and, and everything the left is throwing at trump and 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 stay focused on that you know yeah nikki haley might be a good president donald uh DeSantis might be a good president all these things but do we have the luxury and the time to wait and see if they are or not? Or do we go with a known force and a known commodity? You know, that, that, that's my point. Thank you, Frank. Appreciate that. Um, I agreed with Frank's premise until recently. I agreed that the majority conversation needs to be about this contrast in policy. I'm not sure I buy that anymore. I said last week that something told me early on, the more we talked about J6, the more we talked about the 2020 election, the harder it was to get elected. And I got to be careful and understand that I'm in a bubble. I mean, the four hours a day, I'm in a bubble. I mean, I'm with you. We're, we're, we're basically uh, espousing the views of conservatism. We're beating up on liberals. We're exclaiming our virtue. Uh, we're telling the world what we stand for, what we believe in. I accept that there's a world out there that has a different opinion about some of these things, but I do believe that J6 and the 2020 election aren't as big a traps as I originally thought they were. That there's got to be some consistent messaging around those. Um, I mean, I know what it is on the 2020 election. I mean, if, if I'm asked as a Trump, you know, supporter, what do you think about the 2020 election? I mean, mine is good old boy. You ready? A lot of things happen I can't explain. 
Lot of, what do you mean by that? I don't know, man. Just a lot of things that happened that I can't. What do you mean by that, Ken? Well, I mean, you, you had historical averages and turnout. And then, you, you know, went from 68 to 92%. Zuckerberg spent that half a billion dollars. And we can't really account for exactly what that money was spent on. Uh, we know it went to election commissions. We know they bought vans that drove turnout. We know that 90% of the money spent was in heavily Democrat precincts. There's a lot of things I can't explain, man. I don't know if the election was stolen or not. I don't know how much impact a half a billion dollars can have in swing states. I don't know why that many more people were motivated to vote during the COVID uh, you know, pandemic, but, I mean, it, they did. And, I, yeah, I got a lot of questions about that, a lot of concerns about how fair and legitimate uh, that election was. Trump went from 61 to 75 million votes and, and still lost by 6 million. Yeah, I scratched my head about that. I mean, that, that, that concerns me. And I think you got to kind of that good old boyism. Not accusing anybody of anything, man. I don't know. I mean, I'm dumb. I'm not, but it, something just doesn't, something doesn't add up there. Uh, what do you think? Well, what do you think happened? You think Joe Biden got 81 million votes? I mean, he never had. I mean, but, but Barack Obama's a generational talent at getting votes. Obama got, what, 63 or 4 or 5 million votes? I mean, Biden got 17 more million when people were locked down? Huh? What, what do you think happened? See, I think that's where we got to, that's the hand you play. It, it's it's kind of just a little bit, I don't know, man. I'm just walking around trying to do the best I can to get to the other side of the day and first side of tomorrow. And, you know, I hope it works out. Hope it works out for you. But, yeah, I got some questions about that election. Could, could you explain to me what that half billion dollars was done with? I mean, you, you're a smart guy. You're educated. I mean, you, you know, you, you don't think Trump needs to be president. I don't know what they did with that half a billion. Can you tell me what they did? And in some of these senior homes where 100% of the, uh, of the seniors voted and people with Alzheimer's voted. I mean, can you make answer? Once again, I'm, I'm not as smart as you. So I need you to help me through uh, some of these difficulties that I find on this election. I believe that a part of this anti-Trump sentiment is the revelation will come in 2024 that they didn't really beat him in 2020. I'd love to know what Vegas would put the over-under on Biden's vote total in 2024 under normal circumstances. I'm not talking about an election that includes an unbelievable number of unsolicited, unsupervised mail-in ballots. Under normal circumstances, in a normal election cycle, what is Joe Biden's ceiling? I mean, it doesn't inspire confidence. David Axelrod said that, not me. doesn't inspire a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, Axelrod said that, not me. But we're to believe that he legitimately got 81 million votes. So I just, you know, maybe he did. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.